listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. America is exploding like a supernova. It is tearing itself apart, pulling itself inside out. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump isn't going to fix that. They're shooting each other dead on the streets. Yesterday, an Antifa. Last night, a Trump supporter. The big guns are coming out onto the streets of America. And we are still many weeks away from the presidential election. We'll be talking to two expert witnesses about the state of the American empire. And we'll be talking to British woman, commentator, writer and activist Sonia Poulton on Jeffrey Epstein. Why? Because there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that she doesn't know about Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and their dirty business. Not just what they were doing, but on whose behalf they were doing it. And as the Telegraph newspaper, a pillar of the Conservative Party, opines today that however way you look at it, Britain has abysmally failed in its efforts to control the coronavirus, we'll be talking to Dr. Ranjit Brar about where next after the big demonstration in Trafalgar Square yesterday against lockdowns and against masks. This is Rock and Roll Radio with Pictures. So fasten your seatbelts. This one is going to be a particularly bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're on FM in Washington, D.C., 105.5 are the magic numbers there. And on AM, out of Maryland, coast to coast, from burning city to burning city across the United States of America. We are, of course, listenable all over the world on sputniknews.com, on the internet. But if you are one of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are watching as well as listening to the show, this is an important announcement, followed by arguably an even more important one. The first important announcement is this. If you're watching on Facebook, particularly on Facebook, either on my own page or on RT's multiple Facebook pages, please share it. Share it with all of your friends. I'll tell you why I'm accentuating this point, because last week we were algorithmically strangled in the hours after the show. We caught up and made the average by the end of the week, but it looked bleak until we examined why. And why was that we were simply being blocked. So the best way to avoid being blocked is for you now to share 
this broadcast with all of your friends. The even more important announcement is this. In October, we'll be beginning Moats Extra in the middle of the week. That's right, what many of you have been asking for and we've not been able to bring to you. On a Wednesday night, we will be broadcasting Moats Extra, but it won't be here. You'll have to pay for it because it is not RT's show. It's my own show under my own steam. It's not, therefore, uh, anybody else's responsibility what we say and do on that show. So it'll be a bit more rock and roll if you get my drift. It'll be a bit more rip-roaring. And it'll be on a Wednesday night and it'll cost you one dollar and whatever the British equivalent is at that time. One dollar for Moats Extra. I'm hoping that many of you will come with us. Not just because every Sunday is a bit too infrequent for the fast-moving political events that we cover, but for the aforementioned rock and roll twist which Moats Extra will bring. We'll be uh, announcing uh, nearer the time the kind of things that we'll be talking about, the kind of people we'll be talking to about them and give you some flavor of the show. So put that in your diary. In October, Moats Extra, midweek on a Wednesday, probably at the same time, seven till 10. Now, there's a lot to talk about in the world, and there's a lot to talk about in Britain. But we make no apology uh, for the fact that this show will deal predominantly with America. And the reason for that is that America is exploding like a supernova. A supernova explodes and the planet that's exploding, the star, tears itself literally apart, turns itself literally inside out. And from here, that's what America looks like to me. It is approaching anarchy on the streets of the United States of America. And the anarchy is not stopping short of murdering people with firearms on the streets. A Trump supporter last night was murdered and the murderers rejoiced. They rejoiced that we got a Trumper, we got a fascist. And I'll come back to the question of nomenclature in a moment. This followed, of course, a Trump fanatic, 17-year-old vigilante who killed two people and shot and wounded a third just a night before. This follows police caught on camera shooting a man seven times in the back in front of his family as he got into his car. No discernible threat to the officers involved, even Donald Trump says. He didn't like how it looked when he watched the footage. This is the proximate cause, of course, of still more rioting. I won't call it protesting, because there comes a point where you can no longer say that this is a protest when buildings and motor cars are on fire, people are being assaulted and intimidated. That becomes a riot. And as I think you know, I don't approve of riots. They go up like a rocket, but they come down like a burnt stick. 
and they have very often the precise opposite of the effect that people imagined they might. And I warned you about this right at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter affair in the United States. I said that if this was not handled carefully, Donald Trump would be the main winner from it. And that's already happening. Michael Moore, the great filmmaker, warning the Democratic Party in the last 24 hours that Donald Trump is catching up fast in the opinion polls and in some swing states, particularly the state of Michigan, where uh, Michael Moore hails from, Trump has moved ahead. And it's not hard to see why, is it? If you were an American Joe, if you were mom and pop watching the television as your country literally tore itself apart, would you be terribly enthused to be out voting for Joe Biden in those circumstances? A man who can no longer tie his shoelaces, no longer remember even where he is or what he is. Michael Moore says that 60 million people are incredibly energized to vote for Donald Trump. For Joe Biden, not so much, says Michael Moore, a master of understatement. And then there's the news that my friend, Governor Jesse Ventura is, after all, entering the race. And he, the best of all of the candidates standing, will take some stopping, particularly in certain parts of the United States. And the economic situation almost has to be seen to be believed. I'll be speaking to two prominent American commentators uh, shortly. But to summarize, the economic situation in the United States is on the brink of being entirely comparable to the Great Depression that followed the crash on Wall Street in 1929. We're talking tens of millions of unemployed. We're talking millions of people facing imminent, now imminent, eviction from their homes with no possibility whatsoever of paying the rent that they had been uh, uh, relieved from paying as the stimulus package, ha-ha, $1,200 runs out. No more money, no ability to pay your rent, no preclusion on evictions. We're going to have millions of people in America with nowhere to live, nowhere to work, and no money to eat in a country with hundreds of millions of guns in the midst of a polarization politically, between the right and the right, with the people being offered no meaningful plan out of this almost complete disaster. That's how America looks. Now I want to turn to this issue of political nomenclature. You see, Donald Trump is not a fascist. If he was a fascist, there would be no elections. There would be no courts. Nobody would be allowed to demonstrate. Nobody would be allowed to exercise any civil liberties, 
any lawful rights at all. Trump is an oftentimes dangerous right-wing populist, to be sure, but he is not a fascist. And when you shoot one of his supporters and say you've killed a fascist, you have gone down a very dangerous road. And that's happening in America. You've all seen, I'm sure, the videos of mobs of people, overwhelmingly white people. If you want my honest opinion, overwhelmingly white middle-class people mobbing in restaurants and cafes, forcing forcing diners on pain of who knows what to raise their fists in the BLM slogan, the BLM uh, fist, and to utter the BLM slogans. And you'll all have seen, as I have, pictures of people refusing to do it because most people, and I am one of them, do not like mob rule. This actually has more akin to fascism than the supporters of Donald Trump do. That's my view. It's not fascism, but it's closer to fascism than the people that are routinely accused of fascism. Why do I feel sore particularly about this point? Because this week I've had to get used to the fact that I, me, am far right. The Trotskyites say that I'm far right. The soft shoe shufflers of the Remain camp say that I'm far right. And now the Scottish nationalists say that I am far right. Me, taught by Michael McGahey, the miners champion, and the late and great Tony Benn, who sat at their feet and learned everything that I know, and now far right. Why? I'll tell you why. Because although I'm the one that was carried off by the police and thrown in Greenock jail for opposing nuclear weapons, because I, despite the fact that I am the man, lifelong member of the Transport and General Workers Union and the National Union of Mine Workers, me, the, the anti-war leader, me, the champion uh, of national liberation struggles against colonialism and imperialism all over the world, I am far right. I'll tell you why. Why am I far right? Because I don't believe that a man becomes a woman merely by self-identifying as such. I'm called a homophobe because I don't want my children to be taught at school about anal sex. Despite my Stonewall Award, I'm a transphobe. I'm a homophobe. Because I supported leaving the European Union, I'm a nativist. I'm a British nationalist. Because I believe in my own country, I'm called a racist, I'm called far right. This, ladies and gentlemen, and I insist on that dichotomy, is the road to madness. You cannot go on calling everyone to the right of you a racist, a fascist, far right, not if you want to persuade anyone. You can't go on 
evincing your hatred for your own country and your own countrymen and women. I insist too on that dichotomy and expect your own countrymen and women to give you their political support, to give you their votes, which you need in a democracy. This tendency on the so-called left has to stop now before the left disappears up its own fundament. Because you don't want that statue pulled down, you're not far right. Because you won't agree to abandon pronouns, you are not far right. Because you're demonstrating in Trafalgar Square against masks, you are not far right. You might be bonkers, but you're not necessarily far right. And because a fascist stood at the back and hung a fascist flag over the wall, that doesn't mean 30,000 people in the square were fascists. I could have hung a hammer and sickle over the same wall. That wouldn't have made the 30,000 people communists. Do you feel me? This tendency, and before I leave Trafalgar Square, I will never forget the sight of Piers Corbyn chanting freedom, freedom, standing behind an outrageously well-fed David Icke. But that doesn't mean they are fascists, that they are far right. They're just people with a different point of view to you. So what's left nowadays? If you support the Euro European Union, a bastion of neoliberal capitalist economics, a European fortress to keep out the rest of the world in trade and in free movement, that doesn't make you left. If that's left, I'm not. If you support so-called humanitarian interventions all over the world by NATO, that's not left. If that's left, I'm not. Because you want to tear down the Albert Hall because you don't like the tunes that they normally play and can't just switch over to watch something else instead, that's not left. If that's left, I'm not. Do you get me? This is where I am right now. I demand that we properly name things, that ontology is important, that identifying, misidentifying political opinions is the road to perdition, and maybe even civil war. And we may well be on the brink of civil war in America, another one. Here's my poll number one. Do you believe wearing masks helps prevent COVID-19? A, yes, B, no, C, it's all a conspiracy. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Let's go.
Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for a regular segment called Criminal Injustice about the most egregious conduct of our courts and how justice is denied to so many people in this country. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Thursday and every Thursday for thorough and independent analysis of our criminal injustice system. How did I do? I'm sorry, Prime Minister. At no point did you drive on the left-hand side of the road, and instead of driving us forward, you made several U-turns. We haven't gone anywhere. Well, I, I think you'll find if you turn backwards uh, enough times, eventually uh, you'll go forward. So, uh, did I pass? No, you failed. Miserably. But my teacher said I'd get much higher grades. Better luck next time. This doesn't happen to people like me. You leave me no choice. I'm sorry, but rules are rules, even for Prime Ministers. What on earth is that? My mutant pet. Dominic Cummins. No. Big algorithm. Get it. <laughs> Global higher education. With one of the world's best known iconoclasts. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. Caleb Mopan, as you know, is my favorite commentator in America. He's based in New York City. And we'll be talking to someone else from New York, too, about specifically New York issues. Caleb is my go-to on the American political scenes. He is my colleague at RT, but he's also a writer and a political activist and a power on social media. Follow him if you're not already. Caleb, welcome back to the show. Uh, these are very grim times. Uh, just uh, lay my cards on the table while I want to see the end of the American empire because I want to see the end of all empires. I don't want to see your country tearing itself apart. I don't want to see blood running down your streets. But as I look at things today, that's what I'm now fearing. Where do you stand? Indeed. Um, we just had another shooting last night. Um, a Trump supporter was shot in the streets of Portland. And that comes on the aftermath of uh, just a few nights ago uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as people gathered to protest yet another police murder. Uh, then uh, a young uh, person, uh, someone under the age of 18, showed up and opened fire, killed two of the anti-police brutality protesters, shot others. So uh, this is a situation that has many worried about the future of the country. People are comparing it to possibly the years of lead in Italy, where we saw far right wing and far left wing groups in the streets killing each other, shooting each other. And what's interesting about that period in Italian history was we now know about Operation Gladio and how the CIA was involved in that. And it seems like we're in a situation where it's not just the population here in the United States that is polarized, but it's the government apparatus itself. Uh, there's a big call from the Democrats now to defund the local police, defund the cops. Uh, the local police, not surprisingly, are much more supportive of Donald Trump. Meanwhile, uh, many within the intelligence apparatus, um, 
intelligence officials and such are rallying behind Joe Biden, wanting to defeat Donald Trump because they think Donald Trump is a threat to the U.S. foreign policy apparatus and status quo. Um, and it seems like not only is the population divided, uh, but the state apparatus, the military, the policing agencies, the intelligence apparatus is also divided. The United States is polarizing very quickly. It is uh, uh, uncharted. These are uncharted waters. Uh, uh, a man of your age has not seen anything like this uh, in the United States. A man of my age, even, has never seen anything like this. Uh, there have been riots before, of course. Uh, there have been substantial riots. I remember in the, in the 1960s in, in Watts, for example, very, very substantial riots. But this is all across the country. It, it transcends uh, uh, color, though color is a significant part of it. Uh, many of the, uh, I suppose we could call them left-wing rioters, uh, certainly anti-Trump rioters, are, are not black. In fact, uh, to me, it looks in the pictures I see are disproportionately white. Uh, the apparatus being split, uh, the, the political class being split, these are all quite unprecedented factors. Uh, for me. Um, and it's very hard to see where it ends. It seems to be accelerating, Caleb. Indeed. And probably the biggest factor driving it forward is economic. Unemployment is through the roof. People are losing their homes. Evictions are rising. This pandemic has just decimated the U.S. economy. It has just, it has just destroyed it. Trump was boasting just a few months ago about how the United States had the greatest economy in all of its history ever. Well, that all came crashing down very, very, very quickly. And now many people are scrambling to pay their bills. Here in New York City, uh, outside of the office of the Catholic Charities in Queens, there are are big lines almost every day of working class people who are worried about how they're going to eat and feed their kids and they are suffering and I think that this unemployment uh, this problem uh, spawned by the pandemic spawned by some of our deeper problems in US society like the elimination of good-paying industrial jobs uh, like the the rise of what I would call a low-wage police state um, all of this has culminated in an economic crisis that is leading to instability on the streets the country is is politically polarized, people are not seeing eye to eye, and the two major parties uh, seem to be at odds about how to resolve it. We just had the major conventions. Democrats emphasize that they are fighting to preserve the status quo, that Donald Trump is a radical and he's making everything crazy and inciting Americans against each other. They're going to make things the good old America. Uh, like the way they used to be before Trump's radicalism. Donald Trump, on the other hand, uh, just had a very, very successful convention uh, that gave him a little bit of a boost in the polls uh, because he said he's fighting for the quote-unquote silent majority. He pulled a card from Richard Nixon uh, and basically is arguing that, uh, that he's the law and order candidate. He's going to bring stability. He's fighting for average Americans who are left out and ignored against these elites that want violence and chaos in the streets. Um, it seems like right-wing populism from Donald Trump and a defense of the status quo that is very, very strong and loud uh, from the Biden camp. That's the choice Americans are going to have in November, neither of which really address the underlying economic problem. Uh, Michael Moore said uh, that the 60 million Trumpers uh, are uh, a, a frenzied pitch of readiness. 
the supporters of Joe, not so much. That seemed to me a shrewd observation, and perhaps uh, like a, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand could be a harbinger of something big to come. Well, Michael Moore called it in 2016. All the polls in 2016 seemed to indicate that Donald Trump would lose and Hillary Clinton would be victorious. But Michael Moore, ahead of the election, he said, look, he said the uh, the white working class uh, that have been left behind economically, that are angry uh, at Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party status quo are going to turn out in big numbers. Uh, he referred to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Ohio as the quote unquote Brexit states. Uh, and he predicted Trump Trump's victory. And he was right. And people didn't see that in the polls. And right now, sure, the polls look pretty good for Joe Biden. But Trump is uh, but Michael Moore is predicting uh, a similar turnout, a similar situation. Um, the thing is, in the Biden camp, you just don't have enthusiasm. People just don't get excited about Joe Biden. Uh, his speech closing out his convention was very much a conciliatory speech. People were actually reminded of the the malaise speech of the late Jimmy Carter um, and his his remarks about how uh, how he you know during during the economic crisis he was going to bring everyone together. He cared. It, it's a conciliatory tone. It's kind of a pessimistic, dark tone. Uh, it's not exactly the tone that gets people fired up and excited. The United States is a country very much associated with optimism and hope and the American dream and going out and working hard. And Donald Trump has tapped into that American enthusiasm, whereas the tone coming from the Democratic Party is let's calm down, let's stabilize things, let's listen to both sides, let's negotiate. And in a time when people are suffering and upset, uh, it seems like that angry tone coming from the Republicans might win out. The uh, yeah, I mean, the swing state polls have narrowed quite considerably. Uh, and in one of them, Michigan, as it happens, uh, the latest one has Trump ahead uh, for the for the first time since this crisis uh, enveloped your country. Um, it's obvious to me, it was obvious before it got underway, uh, that uh, widespread unrest in the country, lawbreaking, looting and so on, was going to help Trump and harm the Democrats. But the Democrats are incapable of bringing that under control, aren't they? Because these people, whatever definition you would give them, they're not hanging on Joe Biden's every word. Indeed, uh, there is a rank and file of the Democratic Party, people that were supportive of Bernie Sanders, people that are angry about issues like lack of health care, people who are upset about police brutality and systemic racism that are out in the streets. And probably one of the primary reasons that they are filling the streets right now is they don't really have a, an electoral expression. Uh, there's really no way to vote for what they want uh, at the polls. Joe Biden is very much associated with lock them up, uh, tough on crime bills, and so is Kamala Harris, his running mate. Kamala Harris was a prosecutor in California. She rose up the ranks in California's prosecutorial apparatus at a time when the prison population was rising and rising and rising. She is associated with trying her hardest to keep people on death row, um, you know, locking people up for smoking marijuana, and then she jokes about the fact that she herself is also a pot smoker. Um, people on, on the Democratic camp don't feel excited about their candidate, and many of them are feeling like the only way they can express themselves and give voice to their agenda is to be in the streets. Um, and that seems to be driving a lot of the anger behind the protests. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump, like I said, pulling a page from 
Richard Nixon and trying to say he's going to calm things down. He's going to be tough on the commies and the radicals that are in the streets breaking things. He's the, the strong man fighting for middle America against the chaos and the, the extremism of the far left. Um, Donald Trump is running against Joe Biden as if Joe Biden is a communist. He's calling him a, a Trojan horse for the far left when everyone knows that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are about as centrist and mild as you can get. Um, and the rank and file of the Democratic Party knows that. And a lot of them just don't have enthusiasm for their campaign. Never was there a time more designed almost for a, a Bobby Kennedy uh, or for uh, an early Bernie Sanders. But that just fell away, didn't it? There was no chance in the primary uh, season for such a candidate to emerge. Indeed, uh, the Democratic Party, which is the party of urban political machines, you can go back to the Chicago machine, the Philadelphia machine, uh, the Tammany Hall machine here in New York City. The Democratic Party is very much a party associated with urban political machines and corruption. Uh, and in the Democratic Party, people wait their turn. Now, it's not who gets the support of the rank and file. It's not who's the best and most charismatic politician. It's who has, who has you know, waited out and waited their turn in the pecking order of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is associated with a lot of the corruption of bureaucracy in urban centers of the United States. And because of that, it's not really able to give uh, the average person who would vote for the Democratic Party what they really want. Uh, meanwhile, the Republicans are a party of fanatics. Uh, they're a party of right-wing fanatics, religious fanatics, uh, militarist hawks, and others. Uh, however, um, people believe them when they talk. Uh, they, the, the passion that they have is genuine. They believe what they're saying. Many people may not agree with them, but people take them more at their word. And this is the weird contradiction of politics in our time. But we should be very, very concerned because gun sales in the United States have risen by 72 percent. Um, and we're seeing these shootings, these political shootings, uh, people killing each other at political rallies. I mean, the country is destabilizing very, very quickly. And whoever wins the election uh, in November is going to have the task of trying to bring the United States back to stability and back to civil order because the country is destabilizing and spinning out of control very, very quickly. Now, the new third party, People's Party, I think it's called, forming up uh, this weekend. Have you had a chance to run your eye over that? Well, that's a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters uh, who had planned to have an alternative convention to the Democratic Convention. Uh, they plan to have a people's convention. Now, with the pandemic, we're not really having conventions. And so but but yes, the movement for a people's party uh, has been in the works. Uh, many voices of people that were prominent in the Bernie Sanders movement are pushing that. And it's very likely that if Joe Biden is not victorious in November, uh, that these two two viewpoints within the Democratic Party will part ways. Uh, there's one viewpoint that wants to go in a more social democratic Bernie Sanders direction. There's another wing that wants to go in a more mainstream direction and maybe even team up with the neocons that are backing Joe Biden right now, such as John Bolton um, and others, such as George W. Bush, who's also backing Biden. Uh, there are two ways forward for the Democratic Party. And it seems that if Joe Biden is not victorious, it's very likely that the Democratic Party uh, will part ways, that there will be a division. But let's be real. There's also a deep division within the Trump camp and the Republican camp as well. Uh, there was a lot of neocons uh, in, in the Trump camp who were very unhappy with the Steve Bannon element and, and with the populism of the Trump movement. Uh, we saw Rand Paul, 
who gave a speech at the Republican convention hailing Trump as a non-interventionist. Meanwhile, we had Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, violating the norms of U.S. politics, speaking from Jerusalem to address the Republican National Convention and, and hailing Trump as going after Iran and going after China. There are deep divisions within the Republican camp as well. Um, it seems that from the right and from the left, Americans are tired of the status quo. The status quo being, you know, unregulated free market policies, uh, you know, the deregulation of the economy, globalism, military interventions around the world. Uh, a lot of people in the United States are just unhappy with this status quo, where the United States seems to be run by global multinational corporations. Now, from the right, that translates into economic nationalism. From the left, that translates into democratic socialism. Um, but in both camps, there is uh, distrust and unsatisfaction with the way the United States is moving. A tour de force as always. Caleb Mopin, thanks for joining us here on the mother of all talk shows. Much appreciated. Now, uh, the polls going, uh, uh, wow, uh, almost a thousand have voted in, in just 20 minutes or so. Do you believe wearing masks helps prevent COVID-19? Yes. 55%, no, 36%, C, it's a conspiracy, 9%. Uh, sorry, 932 votes in so far. You can vote uh, on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, I mentioned the Albert Hall, land of hope and glory, rule Britannia. I did my short on all of that on RT this week. Take a look. The Liberals and the so-called left can never win the kind of culture wars unleashed over the last night at the proms. It's amazing, therefore, how often the left and the Liberals declare them. Although I actually like the tunes Rule Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory, singing patriotic songs with the hearties is, of course, not my bag. And some of the lyrics are frankly embarrassing. But it would be a mistake to imagine that everyone singing along takes them literally. Although if you were to do so, uh, then some of the lyrics have a point. It's true that Britannia once ruled the waves. No longer, of course. And when we did rule the waves, we protected the slave ships, although we'd never, ever, ever be slaves ourselves, and allowed the transportation of 12 million Africans to the New World. But the same ruling of the waves, the same Royal Navy, policed the ending of slavery, broke up the slave trade, and freed 150,000 slaves. History, if you'll forgive me, is not always black and white, though it was in 1940 when we ruled the waves of the English Channel. And if we had not ruled those waves, I'd be speaking to you tonight in German. Land of Hope and Glory is a fantastic tune, and it's a patriotic song. Every country has patriotic songs. Why should the British be any different? especially on the British Broadcasting Corporation, paid for by the British on pain of imprisonment in a British jail if we don't pay it. The Albert Hall, the last night of the proms, 
on the BBC is a highlight for many British people. Not for me, not least since the hall seemed to be full of European Union flags the last time that I looked. It's not my kind of music, it's not my kind of event. But to set out gratuitously to offend millions of your fellow citizens doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Tim Farron, the former Liberal Party leader, put the point this way. Why must the left and the Liberals always appear as if they hate the country they wish to persuade to vote for them? I agree with Tim. Not many people have ever said that. He's right about that. The Liberals and the so-called left seem to think it their duty to go against the grain of popular opinion and sentiment in the country. Sometimes that's right. Mainly it's wrong. Politically, it's bonkers, as the Labour Party and the Liberals found out last December in the general election. The BBC have not just offended millions, they've raised a very important demand that we should defund the BBC. They've given it a shot in the arm. They've given it the oxygen of publicity. Talk about an own goal. Vera Lynn has shot to the top of the charts with her rather fine, actually, rendition of Land of Hope and Glory. Me, I prefer Jerusalem. I want to build a new Jerusalem in this green and pleasant land. It is a green and pleasant land. And those who cannot bring themselves ever to acknowledge that are doomed to political failure and increasing isolation amongst the population. It's precisely that kind of condescending snobbery that led to the Brexit triumph in 2016. The left and the liberals do often seem as if they hate the country they wish to propose to vote for them. As I say, I'll whistle along, but I won't sing the words if you don't mind, because when I do, I always find myself substituting land of hopeless story. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Now, uh, those of you of a certain age uh, will remember the magic moment at the Nelson Mandela concert at Wembley to mark his 70th birthday, which I had some small part in uh, creating, uh, when uh, Tracy Chapman appeared on the stage. We'd never seen or heard of her before, but she made an impact that reverberates still. I felt the same when I interviewed my next guest, just the other day <coughs> on Sputnik, which went out yesterday. You can catch it uh, on uh, YouTube now. She's Kayla Popoche. She is a Pulitzer Center fellow, and she's the Queen's Borough Coordinator in the Queen's County Civil Court. I wanted to talk to her, as I do again now, about the situation in New York City which has been devastated by the coronavirus, devastated again uh, by the economic crisis, and which has now a rocketing level of eviction notices being given to people who cannot 
imaginably pay the rent that they've built up over these months of the coronavirus. I hope she's on the line now. Kayla, uh, very nice to talk to you again. Uh, for the benefit of those who haven't yet seen your Sputnik interview, tell us, sketch if you will, the situation for the working class and the poor in the great metropolis of New York. Hi, George. Thank you for having me once again. I hope I'm coming in clear. Yeah. Uh, so for those who don't know, I know there's this idea of New York City as, you know, the capital of capitalism. It is the great, you know, as you said, metropolis, beautiful city. Millions of people want to come here. It generates billions of dollars every year. And to tell you the conditions of the working and the poor in New York City, it would seem like there are two different cities because that's exactly what there is. And we call it the inner city, right? Uh, the conditions that working class people are facing right now in New York is unfathomable and it's disgusting for such a city with so much capability. The working class is 19% of people are out of work. Millions cannot pay for rent in New York City. Thousands are getting uh, petition papers set for eviction for not paying their rent or having some type of disputes with their landlord during the pandemic. And the government hasn't done much about this. You mentioned the eviction cases, the eviction moratorium a little bit earlier, and that's coming. It's also very partial, but it's dwindling. So landlords can still start cases against their tenants. And now these tenants who don't have money, who haven't been able to pay for food, who haven't been able to pay, make their payments on electricity or gas are now also having to worry about keeping their home. And they're forced into such precarious situations while we are still dealing with the pandemic. And unemployment at 19% in a city as big as New York means a gigantic number of people uh, literally uh, on the street most of the day looking for work, looking for a way uh, of uh, feeding their families at home. Uh, and of course, if these evictions really take off, if nothing is done, they'll be living on the street with their children. Exactly. That is definitely something that millions of people are worried about in New York City. There have been protests against the opening of housing court. There have been protests demanding that the city cancel the rent and take uh, the money that is given to NYPD, which is billions, take that money and instead paying people's rent. What the city has done in exchange for that is saying tenants can now apply, more tenants than before, can apply to this loan program. So basically, tenants can take a loan from the government to pay pay back their landlord, and now they're in debt to the government, which is a catch-22 for millions of these people that are forced into these situations. There are millions of people without work. There are undocumented people that don't have work and also aren't accounted for, who don't get any assistance, who don't qualify for any governmental programs, and are just forced into suffering and into even more precarious, unsafe working conditions, doing whatever that they can. Uh, another thing is that these shelters are also over, over, over capacity, and so now you're receiving even more people laying in the streets, sleeping in the subways, and doing whatever they can. They say that violence is right in New York City, which is partially true, but that's because there's been so many austerity cuts to our social programs that instead are going to the police. The police are now being used as a catch-all for all the social ills. If you're homeless and you're sleeping on the train, you call the police. If there's a dispute with your landlord, you call the police. Everything is calling the police and there's no money going to the services that actually are supposed to directly help our communities. 
And the, the picture you paint is, uh, is apocalyptic uh, enough. So uh, for those of us who uh, remember New York in, in the 1970s when uh, things were extremely bad, the city was bankrupt. Uh, the political leadership in the city uh, spends most of its time fighting with the political leadership in Albany, doesn't it? Even though they're both notionally in the Democratic Party. Right. And, you know, they're both to blame for the conditions that we face. Don't get me wrong. New York City is a beautiful city. This is the city that I've called my home my entire life. The people in the community is vibrant. But we have these politicians that have left us to suffer the scraps of their failures. You have our Mayor de Blasio, who is actually taking a lot of the blame for the problems in the city. He is hated both by the left and the right and the center. And he's kind of put himself in that predicament while he also fights with the governor, who is supported by the center and the right. Um, he is supported by big business, real estate. A lot of his funding comes from real estate. So while they fight with each other, we're the ones that are facing the, the, uh, the you know, detriments towards that. Now, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say uh, your, your politics are to the left of theirs. How are people that think like you uh, faring in this, uh, in this vortex? Are you finding uh, an audience for alternative politics? I will say that's one thing. Uh, while the state does target people who think, you know, leftists, uh, they, they let the right wing run amok. As you saw a couple years ago, the Proud Boys were able to harass, stalk, and beat people up. Right wing organizations exist just fine in New York City. The NYPD has endorsed Donald Trump. So the right wing is pretty fine doing its own thing while the left is being targeted by the state. However, at that same time, more working class people in New York City are becoming aware and understanding. And I mean working class people, the people that are actually facing evictions, that, that are facing future homelessness, facing hunger, facing, you know, tightening of their of their financial capabilities. I'm not talking about the people who own their own homes and are working from home and are fine. No, that is a different type of, you know, class of people. The people who are actually facing these ills, which are a great part of New York City, are waking up and are understanding that. The, you know, the Democrats don't really support us and the federal government that's right wing also don't support us. So what is the answer? And the left is trying to mobilize and organize people more. You know, the with the rise of the protests, the 2020 uh, riots and also the housing court movement, you're seeing different faces of people that you never thought you would have seen at the court. You're seeing young white students with old black leaders and you know, undocumented migrants still coming out and marching despite it all. So it, the precarious situations that the government has forced us to live in are also getting people riled up and, and you know, lighting their fire and taking to the streets and doing what they can. And it, it's kind of exacerbated um, more of like a, a class consciousness that never really, we always kind of slept it under the rug in New York City. As we live in the center of capital, we were able to do that, whereas we don't have the, that privilege anymore to do that. We have to become honest and we have to face the reality of what we're seeing and what's going to happen to us. This uh, tale of two cities that you describe, uh, of course, Wall Street. Uh, I used to uh, do a show actually from uh, Wall Street. It was a tiny little uh, attic in Wall Street, but I can say I worked on Wall Street as a radio presenter, uh, is contrasted uh, with these, for example, these undocumented workers that you were talking about. I guess the people 
uh, working in the kitchens of the cafes and the restaurants, uh, people doing the jobs that other people don't want to. They are undocumented. They didn't get the paltry $1,200 so-called stimulus, uh, and they cannot apply uh, for uh, a loan to pay their rent. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, those people are going to be in extremely dire conditions. They're likely if they have any families at all but to move in with them to, again, even overcrowd. So that was the first problem with the coronavirus and why I was able to take flight in New York City was because the rent is so high and people don't make enough money that you have to force like in a, an apartment of two, you'd have six people living there. Many people are forced to live with each other just so that they can be able to afford the rent. So that's what's going to happen more with these people that are undocumented. And that, or maybe some private charities, but there's really not a lot of resources going for them. And I hate to say it, but a lot of them are going to become homeless and evicted. And a lot of people that are documented are also going to become homeless or evicted. And uh, this uh, is, as you say or imply, the reason why New York has been so badly hit by the coronavirus, because of overcrowding, uh, because of millions in poverty. It's clear enough now that that's the perfect breeding ground for the virus. I want to make it clear, though, that while this is a really big city, there's a lot of people. We definitely, if, if there was a lot of economic restructuring, it would totally be possible for people to not overcrowd and to still have the pandemic and, and you know, be able to co like uh, confine that. But it is the exacerbation of the poverty. It is the allowing for developers and, and real estate and landlords to do whatever they want, to charge whatever prices that they want. They destabilized one million rent-regulated apartments, which allows landlords to increase the rent to whatever that they want, which is not feasible for many people. So that is the core problem. It is totally possible in New York City for everyone to live a comfortable and you know, comfortable home, have their own home with their family and not have to live with strangers that they don't know just to make ends meet. It is possible, but it would take our politicians to doing something that they don't want to do. Like, that's why Cuomo wouldn't increase the taxes for the rich during this time. Instead, cutting back on our social programs. Uh, are you hoping Joe Biden will fix things? I know Joe Biden won't fix things and I know Donald Trump won't fix things. We have to stop looking to these politicians that are funded by people that profit off of our poverty. We have to start looking towards each other and it's only the working class that has to, t you know, form together and unite and bring the government to listen to us instead of the other way around. But at this time, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, neither of them have our best interests. They have their different in, in the same ways, though, they have the interests of big business and the wealthy, just different sectors of it. And neither of that includes us working people. Kayla Papushe, thanks very much for joining us on the mother Thanks. of all talk shows. Thank you. Uh, do you believe wearing masks helps present, prevent the virus? Yes, 54% down one. No, 37% up one. It's a conspiracy, 9%. 1,102 have voted so far. The poll closes at 10 minutes to nine. So get voting on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Let me pause to read some of the material that's coming in. Kathy Guest says, a face mask will not kill me. A ventilator would. 
Carlos Carrion says, you know what, in this country, you don't have to be in a political party. All you have to be is of a different color and people attack you. That's happened for over 200 years or more in this country. It's happened to the original people in this country, to black folks and Latinos. So your point is totally lost. Party, who the hell cares about parties? And on Twitter, a historian says, why did Bernie Sanders quit the US presidential elections? Wasn't he a better choice than Biden? And my old friend Scouser Lahr up in Liverpool says the dangerous fools throwing around the fascist tag at anybody they disagree with need to study what fascism really is. These are people who are liberals who think that they're socialists. They're an embarrassment to the real left. And Ursai says, why have surgeons always worn masks? Obviously, it prevents them infecting open wounds via droplets. I don't see how there can be any doubt about their efficacy. People who don't wear masks usually seem to be self-important, arrogant, society-hating types from what I have seen. And Stephen McCandless on YouTube says some states vote Democrat, some vote Republican. Maybe Minnesota, Washington State, Oregon are just waiting for young people to come through and shift the balance in the other states for the Democrats. And JJ Attack says defunding the police is not good politics. No one thinks that it is good. Jobs Not War says this may sound harsh, but if the US is on the verge of civil war, then tough luck. They have supported riots, civil unrest, violence, in Iran, Venezuela, and Hong Kong. What goes around comes around. And Pat Brannigan says, my conservative friend said that wearing a mask is just a small inconvenience. Masks help, they are not foolproof, but they help a lot and can save a life. And Half Empty says, Congress cares nothing for the poor and the starving in the USA and will be to their own demise in the end. And Old School says Trump lost the popular vote in 2016. Democrats need to get out in the swing states and sway the electoral vote. And Big G Haywood, great name, says the contradictions boiling under the surface due to this system are coming to a head in America. And we have a population that doesn't understand the situation at all. Right after the news, uh, we've got the wonderful Sonia Poulton, whose writing and commenting has made her a very big name uh, on social media. We like to think we played a small part in giving her a step up on, uh, on the Sputnik show, but also here on the mother of all talk shows. I'm glad she's still able to fit us in now that she's in the bigger time. She's coming up after the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. 
Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. India has seen a record 78,761 new coronavirus cases in the last day, the worst 24-hour spike ever recorded across the world in the pandemic. The country's health ministry also reported 948 deaths, taking the total number of fatalities there to 63,498. India is one of the countries that has been worst affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, having seen the fourth highest number of people killed after the US, Brazil and Mexico. The UK has had the fifth highest number of reported deaths in the world, with 12 new fatalities announced on Saturday, taking the total to 41,498. Global case numbers have now reached 25 million, according to Johns Hopkins University, which has been keeping track of the disease. British universities could become the care homes of the second wave of COVID-19, a higher education union has warned. Joe Grady of the University and College Union said that the start of a new university year is the biggest migration of people on an annual basis in the UK and that there is a risk to public health by pushing on with plans to fully reopen campuses in a few weeks' time. Riot police have been deployed in the Belarusian capital ahead of the latest demonstration against the re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko. They have called on off Minsk Independence Square as columns of people join a march towards it. Several have already been arrested. Belarus has been gripped by mass protests since the election on the 9th of August, widely believed to have been rigged in favour of the longtime leader who's been in power for 26 years. An attempt to storm Germany's parliament during Saturday's big Berlin protest against COVID-19 restrictions has been condemned by politicians across the political spectrum. Demonstrators, many with far-right sympathies, broke through a cordon and ran up the steps of the Reichstag before police dispersed them. The interior minister said there should be zero tolerance for such behaviour. Some 38,000 turned out for the wider, largely peaceful Berlin demonstration. The UN Refugee Agency says almost 400 refugees and migrants rescued by three ships in the Mediterranean must be allowed to disembark safely. A joint statement issued with the International Organization for Migration said it was a humanitarian imperative to save lives. Italy's Coast Guard evacuated 49 people from an overloaded rescue vessel funded by British artist Banksy. Another rescue boat, Sea Watch 4, later took the remaining 150 on board. 
Donald Trump's sister has described him as tight as a duck's ass in a new set of recordings. Former federal judge Marianne Trump Barry can also be heard condemning Ivanka Trump, the president's advisor and second child, and the president's son, who she describes as a public moron. Trump Barry criticizes what she called the damn Ivanka after she posted a photo on Instagram of herself and her young son on the same day the Trump administration was reportedly separating migrant children from their families in 2018. These come from the second set of recordings Trump's niece, Mary Trump, in a conversation between her and Trump Barry made in researching her book about the president called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. In the recording, the pair continued to talk about Ivanka with Trump's sister saying she's a mini Donald, adding the president is besotted with her. He always has been. She's always been his favorite. Moving on to Eric Trump, the president's second son, Trump Barry said, meanwhile, Eric's become the moron publicly. On her brother, she says he only acts when he could be seen in a favorable light, and he's as tight as a duck's ass. A tiny painting of a weary, melancholic old man long rejected as a fake and consigned to a museum basement has been revealed as one from Rembrandt's workshops and possibly by the man himself. The Ashmolean Museum in Oxford will this week put on display Head of a Bearded Man, which was bequeathed to them in 1951 as a Rembrandt panel. In 1981, it was rejected by the Rembrandt Research Project, the world's leading authority on the artist that effectively has final say on attributions. Dispirited curators moved it into the museum's stalls in the basement. However, from Wednesday, it will now be on display again. And finally, the tweet announcing that the actor Chadwick Boseman had died is now the most liked tweet of all time. Twitter confirmed the accolade on its own verified account by simply stating, most liked tweet ever, a tribute fit for a king, hashtag Wakanda forever. Bozeman's account shared a black and white image of him with a statement confirming he had lost a four-year battle with colon cancer on Friday. He was 43 years old and had kept his illness a secret. The actor was the star of the movie Black Panther as well as several other box office hits. The message, which went viral, now stands alone at the top of Twitter's metrics board with more than 6.9 million likes. The next closest tweet was one from Barack Obama in 2017 that included a quote by Nelson Mandela. It said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. Those words and image have been liked more than 4.3 million times. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. listening to Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Now get voting on the poll at my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. You've got until 10 minutes to nine tonight. The phones, as you probably have gathered, are not yet working. Uh, the gremlins are in the system. We can hear the people who are phoning up and the phones are ringing off the hook, but they cannot hear us and therefore we can't yet put them on the air. But we're working hard uh, to fix that. Meanwhile, of course, you can email me, you can tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK. But we've got plenty of top guests still to come. And they don't get any better than Sonia Poulton, a broadcaster, a writer, and an activist. And she joins me now. Sonia, welcome back. 
on the Thank you, mother of all talk shows. Some will think it strange uh, that an English woman uh, will talk with great authority uh, on the Epstein case. But of course, one of your many campaigning themes has been the sexual exploitation of children, which seems to be everywhere uh, in politics, in public life, in private life, in homes. It seems like an epidemic to me. And I'm it, guessing it that that, is, uh, that was the, uh, the foundation, if you like, of your interest in the Epstein case. Have I got that right so far? Spot on. Now, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Epstein is, of course, uh, I think we can say, uh, the most high-profile uh, or at the centre of the most high-profile web of abusers yes. uh, that yes. has been unmasked so far. And his, uh, his uh, co-conspirator, collaborator, and alleged rapist herself, Ghislaine Maxwell, is still alive and facing the justice system. So what can you tell us about where we are on the Epstein-Maxwell story at this point? Okay, well, obviously, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is in the same correctional facility, Metropolitan Detention Centre, New York, as Jeffrey Epstein died in. Um, and what was interesting, George, is that even though she's banged up, she's still getting preferential treatment. We hear this weekend that Maxwell is the first person to get a visit from a lawyer after this COVID period is through. So that just shows you that even when she's in prison, she's still subject to preferential treatment. And you're absolutely right. The reason that I took an interest in Epstein and Maxwell in the first place is because I was primarily interested in paedophiles within the British establishment. But the fact is, is that Epstein's operation, as you so correctly said, was an international operation. And wherever I turned, I couldn't ignore him. He was just constantly there, always tied up with somebody that I was investigating on this side of the pond. So obviously, Maxwell, we're waiting to hear what's going to happen. She's, you know, waiting her trial for sex trafficking, faces up to 35 years. I would be highly surprised if she even got to trial. Don't forget, she's still got great friends in the media. Um, she's being portrayed to a certain degree now as a victim of Epstein, as if she was some sort of wronged woman, as if she was manipulated by him as well as everybody else. And of course, I don't know the, the truth. And, and these are all allegations. She is waiting uh, trial. But the, but the fact is, there is substantial information to suggest that they were partners in crime. Um, and obviously, what we've seen recently, we've seen the files which have come out to do with uh, Virginia Gouffre's 2015 defamation lawsuit. And that was very enlightening as well, not least because of the information that was redacted, which made me and others think, oh, this is part of another cover up again. But there was a contradiction. And one of the most glaring things that, that stood out about those files, for example, was this contradiction that Maxwell was insistent that the last time she'd had any dealings at all with, with Epstein was at least a decade ago. And then, of course, in these files, there was an email or emails between Epstein and Maxwell in which he was telling her, act as if you've done nothing wrong because you haven't, hold your head high, walk out in the street and all this sort of stuff. And so obviously that was only five years ago, not the decade ago that uh, Maxwell wanted us to believe. 
believe. And so, you know, it is quite interesting. The other, the other new development I think is interesting is that the Attorney General now is seeking information on Epstein's relationship between um, Epstein and Leon Black. Leon Black being one of the most powerful men on Wall Street, um, a multi-multi-billionaire, um, along with Leslie Wexner um, of Victoria's Secrets. And the question for many people is why would these incredibly powerful billionaires constantly giving money to Jeffrey Epstein? And I think that is something that the Attorney General is quite keen to unpack regarding Leon Black. Yes, for sure. Uh, his whole rise and rise to billionaire status is inexplicable uh, in normal terms. Uh, this is a man with no qualifications, who was a right. failed school teacher, uh, was not uh, an economist, not a banker, and that he ended up right at the center of this web of billionaires is not explicable, except as a part of his filthy, obscene I obsessions uh, with children. Absolutely. I mean, that is the reality. Maria Farmer, lest we forget, who, who was the first person to come forward and actually give information regarding the criminal charges against Epstein, she said quite clearly that Epstein took orders from Leslie Wexner. Now, certainly Wexner gave a terrific amount of money, including paying millions into a company that Epstein set up in 2013. So lots of people were giving this man money, apparently for tax advice. Well, that's interesting. Again, multi, multi million pounds for tax advice. I mean, I know that accountants can be well off, George, but this is quite a whole other story, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And obviously what, what we're hearing repeatedly over and over again, the allegations are that some of these powerful men, I'm not making allegations against any of the men I've named, but some of the very, very powerful men who were around Maxwell and Epstein, they were being sent to have sex. With, well, these young girls were being sent to have sex with them. And so absolutely, Absolutely. There is every reason to believe that what we're dealing with is this filthy, corrupt operation that probably involved blackmail. We know there were certainly links to the secret services. You know, th there was so much going on. We know how secret services get involved in blackmail to do with child trafficking. There's a lot to unpack here. My biggest worry, George, is that everybody is so focused on the names, such as Prince Andrew, for example. And what I would hate to see happen is all the other big names manage to somehow just slip away very, very quietly. Don't forget that, uh, for example, in, in Epstein's Black Book, you had some of the most major American political players, the Trump family, the Kennedys, the Clintons, all of these should be subject to examination, what their relationship entailed, why they were so often on Epstein's island. I think there's so much more to unpack on this story. Yeah, sure. I mean, you can be in someone's book. Your phone number can be in someone's Absolutely. book uh, entirely innocently, of course. But it's hard to see uh, what the reason for repeated visits to Epstein's island uh, could yes. possibly be. You know that old joke uh, that was asked uh, by Mrs. Merton of Debbie McGee? Uh, what know. did you first see in the multimillionaire Paul Daniels? <laughs> I'd like to ask Lord Mandelson, uh, yeah. Tony Blair, right. Uh, right. Uh, Ehud Barak, and so on. Right. What did you right. first see in the multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein, why was he so 
attractive to you that that's you right why, spent so why much was he time? so engaging yeah yeah absolutely and let us not forget recently judge esther salas has lost her family judge esther salas being the judge that who was put in charge of the lawsuit to, to delve into the affairs between epstein and deutsche bank suddenly somebody claimed to be from fedex rolled up at her door and killed her husband and son and that was literally what not even a week after she'd been given that case apparently supposed to be somebody who was an anti-feminist who had a problem with her being a female judge i don't buy that for a second you know it's absolutely ridiculous we are dealing with multi layers of corruption of very very powerful people and you're absolutely right just because somebody has somebody's telephone number it it doesn't mean that that person is corrupt at all. But you, again, you're absolutely right. And that is these people who had repeat trips on the Lolita Express over to Epstein's Island. They, you know, they can't possibly convince us that they didn't suspect something if they weren't even involved. So I think it is a stinking affair. We need to get to the bottom of it. I think it would be a crying shame if Maxwell doesn't face um, justice because there is a great there is a great deal of worry about that. I can see it already being implied. I can see the propaganda happening in the media. You know how it works, George. And as I say, she comes from not only a crime family, but a media family. And so that family is very, very well entwined with the media establishment. And I think that there is a degree of protection around her at this moment in time. And that we need to be very, very concerned about. By the way, the killer of the judge's husband and son uh, was himself then found dead, uh, either but... by his own hand or uh, somebody else's hand. Uh, right. a kind of Jack Ruby affair. This gets murkier and murkier. I'm glad it you does. and others are still looking at it closely. Do come back, Sonia, and tell George. us Thanks. when there's more to report. Sonia Poulton, Thank so much. thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. My goodness, the votes are piling in. You can still vote at George Galloway on my Twitter feed. Do you believe wearing masks helps 55%? No, doesn't help, 37%, or it's a conspiracy, 8%. Glad to say that's down one. Now, let me read some more of the social media because the calls are slow because of the breakdown. Uh, this is from Diana Litch. Dear Mr. Galloway, with all due respect, I wish to differ with you that Dr. Brar is the last word on the corona pandemic. In fact, the left is failing not only in the UK, but in the US. Months ago, it's been determined what the threat that COVID presents to civil society at large has been established. It's not outside of other yearly death rates from other causes. Diana, that's simply not true. Making a cold flu pathogen the basis for an international medical tyranny ought to raise your eyebrows. But something has blindsided you to the real situation. What would that be, Diana? Am I on Bill Gates's payroll? What would it be, Diana? What is it that has blindsided me? I'd like to ask you to phone up, but the phones are not working. Uh, David Stamps on email uh, says, does any other part of the English vocabulary exist now? Coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. My suspicion surrounding the political segment of the coronavirus has been aroused further. Tony Blair, I understand, has called for mass coronavirus testing in the UK. Oh, the tyranny of it. 
Does Tony Blair see pound sides amidst the mass testing call? <sighs> David Stamp says, goes on, whenever there is a crisis to be exploited, it appears that Tony Blair's name crops up. And Peter Soterakis says, uh, Mr. Galloway, interesting to note that the tactics of Scottish nationalists driving out the British Prime Minister from his holiday location in Scotland are exactly the same as the neo-fascist Vox party supporters in Spain, who did likewise to the Podemos leader and Spanish Prime Minister Pablo Iglesias and his wife and children when they were recently on summer holidays in Asturias. I didn't know that. They were essentially harassed and hounded back to Madrid, egged on by the right-wing press. No investigation or commission has yet eventuated. Thank you for that, Peter. I didn't know that. Tony Getliff says, as Frank Skinner once said, somewhere a comedian will have had in their audience a person whose family member was run over whilst wearing a chicken costume. No joke is completely safe. The hate bill in Scotland could abolish comedy. And on YouTube, Joanne Nairi says Trump and Tucker Carlson are stoking the flames of the right-wingers to attack peaceful protesters. And Renv says Americans will tolerate being homeless with no food as long as you don't try and take away their guns. Chester Cross says beers in, moats on Sundays, exclamation mark. Thank you. And Peter says Trump going up in the polls, rioting in democratic states, starting to backfire. And Abe says, who benefits from triggering a race war with a community already ravaged by the coronavirus? And Celtic Man says, great anxiety here in the States as we stand on the threshold of civil insurrection. Half Empty says, the fabric of American society is unraveling. No wonder with all the hatred, rage, and guns. And on Twitter, the lazy coconut says, moats extra for a Wednesday dollar. Absolute bargain, great news, good luck with it. Thanks for that. It's just that uh, every Sunday is fabulous and we're very grateful to RT for making uh, all this available to us and, uh, and putting up the funds for it. Uh, they're not, because they're busy during the week, uh, going to host uh, a midweek show. We did ask them, of course. Uh, so we thought, let's try and do it ourselves. You've got to pay for it, of course, because uh, you can't assemble all this for nothing. Uh, but I thought a dollar was a decent price. What is that now in, uh, in sterling? 70 pence or so, maybe a little more than 70 pence. To get an extra moat and a rock and roll version of it too, uh, things that we uh, can't do on here, but will do on there, like a bit of music, for example, which can be done on here for copyright right reasons, but can be done uh, on the web more easily, although not cost-free by any means. So there'll be a bit of music, a bit of rock and roll politics, culture, a bit of comedy, uh, a bit more, I don't know, let your hair down type of moats show. Moats Extra, starting in October. Uh, on my website. It might be on other platforms, but it'll probably just be on my website, which is georgegalloway.com. So write that address 
down now. And uh, on Facebook, Roman says, anarchy is simply no one rules over other person. Not chaos, anarchy does not equal chaos. Do not say anarchy. Anarchy is not Antifa. That's me corrected. And in response to the poll, Fraser says, I think they probably help a little. It's a very simple and easy thing for lots of people to do that will help keep the numbers down a bit. That's my view. That's all this is at this stage. Get the country working again and try to keep the lid on this as best as we can until we have a vaccine. My feelings entirely. These masks are not a panacea. They're not a miracle. They're not a miracle cure. They're not 100%. But I figure that when there's a lot of germs around, uh, we should try and space out a bit, uh, try and uh, stay a little bit further away from people than we uh, did before. Don't go into big crowds unless you absolutely have to. I don't and won't. And wear a mask uh, when you are moving around. Uh, and if it reduces even by 10 or 20 percent the chances that uh, you'll catch the virus or give the virus to someone else, what's wrong with that? It's not tyranny. If you think that's tyranny, you've never seen tyranny. I've seen tyranny. I've been up close and personal with tyranny. Trust me, a cloth across your face some of the time is not tyranny. Phones are working. Sing hallelujah. Michael in Minneapolis is first up. Go ahead, Michael. Hey, George. Good to be on. How are you doing today? You're the first caller because the phones have been down. Wonderful to hear from you. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about uh, there's been a lot of updates in the, in the situation in the United States. I'm actually uh, in Wisconsin working currently, um, not actually about an, about an hour and a half from where uh, Jacob Blake uh, was shot in the back seven times uh, when he was unarmed by a police officer um, last week, which, you know, he's now paralyzed. He miraculously lived. Um, but subsequent to that, there have obviously been protests breaking out everywhere, especially uh, in Kenosha, which spilled over into some serious and really scary violence. Um, a teenager uh, who is a right-wing sort of uh, uh, military, I guess, uh, police enthusiast showed up with an AK-47. His mom drove him to the protest, and then he subsequently shot three people, uh, murdering two of them. And I think what's really alarming about the violence and the way it's turned now is that he was able to walk out of there with that AK-47. He walked right past the police. They didn't stop him. And there's actually footage of them earlier of the police officers thanking the right-wing militia members for, quote, you know, the work they've done. So you see this thing where even as the, as the police are cracking heads of, you know, peaceful protesters, they're also allowing this sort of right-wing violence to kind of go, you know, he was, he was arrested, but not until, you know, they arrested him at his home, I think, 10 hours later. Um, so yeah, that's uh, and you've got people uh, on social media saying they, they'd like him as, as their president. Um, what's the legal situation, Michael? Um, because for us over here, all of this is a bit hard to understand. Uh, how can anybody be allowed to walk down any road with an AK-47 in their hand? How can that be legal? Is it legal? 
Um, well, it wasn't for him because not only was, I mean, it is unclear, it's believed that the gun was trafficked across straight state lines and also he's under the age of 18. So he was not legally able to carry a gun like that. Um, unfortunately, uh, uh, most Americans are able to do so. The NRA has sort of started, they sort of rewrote, the Second Amendment is the right to bear arms in the United States. And after World War II, the NRA um, engaged in a, you know, a, propaganda campaign that that uh, continues to this day to sort of rewrite the second amendment from being like you're allowed to have some guns to you're allowed to have any guns so that's kind of how we've gotten where we are and it's been you know it's been sort of they turned it into sort of a conservative call to arms sort of issue um and that's that's kind of why so many military style weapons are legal for average citizens to use in the united states which is terrifying um, I'd well, look, that, say, that's, uh, uh, that's pregnant with a lot of problems uh, over the next few months, isn't it? Uh, because uh, these demonstrations are not going to uh, stop. Uh, the propensity of these demonstrations to turn into riot and looting and so on uh, is unlikely to stop. Uh, there are millions, I'm guessing, uh, of right-wing uh, military-age uh, men with guns uh, who are going to come out on the streets. Are we looking at civil war here, Michael? I mean, I, I guess I hesitate to use that term, but I am, I'm, I'm, I am scared, George. You know, I am out protesting a lot uh, when I'm not working, and it does feel like there's a different kind of fear. In fact, just last night, another uh, protester, who's actually a right-wing protester, was killed by another right-wing protester in Portland. They got in an argument and the one guy sprayed him with pepper spray, and his response was to shoot the guy in the, in the chest. And that, that guy, that assailant is still at large. So not only are the right-wing militia members shooting, you know, innocent, peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters, but now they're shooting each other. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this, unfortunately, George. I think you're going to see more violence, and also people, you know, the, the peaceful protesters get angry. And, you know, they start to, at a certain point, they get angry and they, you know, like in Kenosha, they burned down a used car lot and they burned, you know, a few other businesses. We saw that in Minneapolis as well. I've been, and, I've been angry know, lots of times, Michael. Violence. I've been angry lots of times, but it, it never crossed my mind to uh, set fire to a used car lot. Uh, what kind of protesters are these? Well, I mean, the, I, you know, I've been to a lot of these protests, George, and the vast majority of protests, you know, protesters are peaceful protesters who want to see change. But I think, I think you always see bad actors take advantage of civil unrest. And I think that's what you're seeing. So if, if you want to go out and cause mayhem, it's easy to do so in a big crowd. And, you know, I also, there is, I mean, there's some evidence. You know, I don't want to go too far into this because it's, it, it's murky. It's always hard to figure out what the facts are. But there is some evidence, and there are, you know, a lot of people who will tell you that there are people particularly stoking the violence intentionally who are, you know, the right-wing sort of Trump Provo supporters. Provocateurs, you know, Donald, yeah. Donald, Trump is a, Donald Trump is essentially trying to run Richard Nixon's 1968 Law and Order campaign. Yeah. Well, you better hope, so it, you better hope it doesn't work, uh, Michael, uh, because uh, I remember that election only too well. Michael in Minneapolis, many thanks for a very, very illuminating call. Let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. 
You know, I had uh, that George Galloway back in here the other day. Well, I'll tell you what. Talk about the knowledge. By the time he got out, I had a first class degree. We are talking. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. It's Vanessa. Where's the cheese pizza, Robinson? Come on, what are the public paying you for? Oh, and uh, get another virgin colada while you're there. There's a good chap. No, who's ringing the old uh, phone? Hello? How did you get this number, Ghislaine? No, 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 that's impossible. I, I can't possibly fly to New York. Why? Uh, our mummy's grounded me. Oh, yes. Certain to cut off my allowance, you know. Y yes, yes, I, I know it comes from the public, but uh, she holds the strings. Oh, I've uh, got to go. Uh, my, my pizza will be here uh, any minute. I'm not sweating, you're sweating. No. Ghislaine, don't call again. Robinson? Sir? Come here with that moist towelette. It's getting a bit hot for my liking. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Now, this is the point at which I describe to you events that happened in this week in our history in which, to uh, an amazing degree, uh, recur and recur, and certainly shape the way things are today. On this day, in 1146, European leaders outlawed the crossbow, intending to end war for all times. It obviously didn't stop wars or the crossbow. Indeed, it may well have spurred on inventors to come up with even more fiendish weapons. That's quite a find, 1146. Uh, on this day in 1986, that can't possibly be true, 1986. The Beatles were finished in 1970. On this day, the Beatles released the first record on their own label, Apple. It was Hey Jude. It must be 66, surely. It was also the beginning of the end. The label went down and the band split up some 18 months later. Carelessness, lads. Can we get somebody to proofread these things? In 1982, Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader, left his Beirut headquarters after more than a decade. It was three months after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Three months later, Israeli-backed fascist militias entered two refugee camps in Beirut, Sabra and Shatila, and massacred hundreds of Palestinians over a period of three days. It was in revenge for the assassination of President-elect Bashir Jamal four days earlier. On August the 31st of 1994, the provisional IRA declared a ceasefire, the complete cessation of military operations in Northern Ireland. It put an end to 25 years 
of war. On the same day in 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed after her car crashed in a Paris underpass. The driver and her lover, Dodie Fayed, were also killed. It emerged that the driver was very drunk. On September 1st in 1939, World War II started when German forces attacked Poland across all frontiers and Nazi planes bombed Polish cities, including the capital, Warsaw. Britain and France prepared to declare war. Two years later, in 1941, Jews living in Germany were required to wear the yellow star of David. In 2003, the widow of Dr. David Kelly, the government scientist found dead, appeared before the Hutton inquiry. Kelly was found dead after briefing a British journalist that a dossier claiming Iraq had weapons of mass destruction was dodgy. More than that, it was a complete invention. His wife told the inquiry that Kelly ended his life feeling betrayed and belittled by his political masters. I'm going to Ireland this week, put some finishing touches uh, to the film I'm making with the award-winning uh, Irish director, Sean Murray, called Killing Kelly. Uh, it's been one of the most fascinating and frustrating projects of my life. Fascinating because though I thought I knew the whole Kelly story, I didn't know the half of it. Frustrating because, well, as you can probably imagine, a very significant number of very powerful people do not want this film to come out. On the 2nd of September in, the, in 1944, the Holocaust diarist Anne Frank was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. This was also the day in 1945 that Japan surrendered in the Second World War, bringing an end to six years of war. In 1979, on the same day, police discovered the body of a young woman thought to be the 12th victim of the Yorkshire Ripper in an alley in Bradford. Peter Sutcliffe was tried at the Old Bailey in 1981 and was found guilty of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven more. And on the 3rd of September in 1939, Britain declared war on Germany after the invasion of Poland. France followed six years later, quickly joined by Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. And in 1943, British troops landed on mainland Europe, four years to the day after war was declared in, on Germany. A day and several years later, on the 4th of September in 1957, the Wolfenden Report was published, saying that consenting sex between homosexual adults in private in Britain should no longer be a criminal offence. And seven years to the day later, the Queen opened what was then Europe's longest suspension bridge, linking Edinburgh to Fife across the River Forth. On the 5th of September in 1839, the first opium war began when British naval ships attacking Chinese vessels after China confiscated and destroyed opium. The Navy had been protecting 
the British drug traders and facilitating the trade. The effects of this are still being felt to this day. I'm making a short, very short video at the moment about the history of Britain's uh, really quite wicked relations with China historically. And when you see it, I'll tell you what, it's not half going to open your eyes. And finally, in 1997, Mother Teresa, a nun and Nobel Peace Prize winner who devoted her life to helping the sick and the poor, died at the age of 87, now a saint. Another seven turbulent days in our world history that shaped the way we are. Here's another call, Brian in Glasgow on Bankers. Go ahead, Brian. Hi, George, how are you? Good, nice to hear from you. Go on. Uh, well, I'm, th I'm thoughtful the same when I was listening to the young lady in New York, uh, the scene that went, ah, hey, give me control of the money supply, I care not who makes the laws. Yeah, uh, well, uh, the, the, the money supply, of course, uh, is a key part uh, of how capitalism operates, uh, and our economy and the US economy have been far too heavily skewed towards the financial industries, don't you think? Absolutely, but more so that they've been skewed towards the financial industries in the sense they've been skewed so they can skew the financial industry in favour of a certain interest rather than the idea of a model of a performance in time. Uh, so that's what they have to obliterate. So that's what they call deregulation. Uh, but do you remember Bill Binney, uh, the CIA analyst? It was Bill Clinton that ended the... Glass-Steagall Act, which separated commercial banking from what yeah. we might call the casino. Uh, that was a catastrophic mistake. Absolutely. That's the Reagan and the uh, Thatcherite uh, giving the rubber stamp to that deregulation, which obviously let deregulation become what it actually means, which is no rules, no yeah, exactly, free economy yeah. because it's not regulated. Exactly. And, George, the thing I wanted to say as well was because we sort of mentioned elite banking, the point I was trying to make the other week was uh, going back to the idea that I think the left has lost itself because how the left used to align with the idea of economics, uh, I think it's grown up a bit. I certainly have. I grew up in a very socialistic uh, environment, uh, and I'm glad for that, but I was also brought up to be rational, and both me and my family have definitely shifted in the sense that you, you need free markets, you need... You need money. Again, it's this idea of pitting good ideas against each other if you've got a vested interest. And that's why I talk about elite banking, corporations and the media, because there is certainly a, a, a vested interest from their point of view. And I see things collapsing because it's creative destruction. Who has made more money in the lockdown? That's who we should focus on. Well, uh, the billionaires uh, and one or two trillionaires have become uh, fantastically richer, and a significant number of people, some 200, have become <coughs> billionaires uh, in, the, uh, in the pandemic. So the billionaires got richer and more people became billionaires. Brian, thanks for the call. Kevin in Woodbridge on fascists in America. Go ahead, I'm fascinated. Kevin, tell me. Um, right, well, it, it's, I, I was, calling out to support what you were saying earlier. Uh, I don't know if you got a mixed message from your screener. But, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not, I, I don't think there's, you know, I mean, I'm sure there is a, a minority of people who could be called fascists, but most sure. of the 
It's a tiny, tiny group of Hitler lovers. Yeah, exactly. The same as over here, you know. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think what is going on <clears throat> is actually terrifying. I follow American politics, and uh, I think um, we've all, like, even over here, we've got to be careful. We've all got a responsibility for what we say. Yeah. Um, you know, whether we think we're winding people up as a joke or whatever, because people are getting so wound up over there that they are taking guns out now. And it, you know, I, I don't, the other thing I wanted to say is that I, you know, I admire you, George, although I don't agree with your politics. Yeah. If I lived in America, if I was given the choice between Hillary and Trump, I'd have voted Trump as well. And you've got to, you know, you understand the working class. I, I grew up working class. Um, people want jobs and prosperity and, you know, to treat other people decently and fairly. And that policies that lead to that haven't been coming from the from the left. For no, from the well, the, the, I don't call them left, but they call themselves left. You're right. Uh, well, but uh, I, I call them the, the, the liberal uh, classes uh, who who have effectively taken over uh, both the Democratic Party and the Labour Party in Britain. Uh, making them ever more useless from the point of view of working class people. Uh, the infatuation of the Labour Party with the European Union was an anti-working class infatuation. In fact, the Labour Party increasingly, culturally, uh, even linguistically, uh, finds it impossible even to look working class people in the face. And I think the same is true of the Clinton-Obama caste uh, that now controls the Democrats in America. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you, look at, um, if you look at it historically, I think what happened was after the Berlin Wall came down, they, they, they took all the wrong lessons and they thought, right, fresh start, globalism, all this stuff. Um, I mean, that's when the <clears throat> negotiations for Maastricht started. Um, and, you know, they went down a completely wrong path. It, I mean, George Bush, uh, the first George Bush, even, even used the phrase New World Order. I mean, they were, they were trying to set up this globalist... Uh, I mean, you, you remember Fukuyama, end of history, all this stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember in real time when George Bush uh, Sr. used that phrase. Uh, I was watching it in a hotel room, bed, nearly fell out of bed uh, yeah. when he used that phrase. We're going to make a new world order. Yeah. You could almost see the capital letters uh, in his voice. It's that that's unraveling now. It's, yeah. it's this experiment. They've been, I mean, Blair, Blair was this experiment, in, you know, setting concrete. I mean, everything, I mean, I, you know, I wish, you know, I mean, I don't, I, I, don't know much about John Smith. I don't know if you knew him. Very well. I can't imagine if he'd lived that he would have made the mistakes that Blair made. No, no, for sure. Uh, it was uh, a, a, an incredibly important loss uh, yeah. for politics in Britain and therefore in the world because uh, John Smith was a friend of mine, a very dear one. I knew him extremely well. Uh, and I can say that uh, many of these, uh, we'll call them mistakes, but there were more venal uh, than that uh, would not have happened if he had lived. Kevin, thanks. Fascinating call. Uh, Omar is in Dubai. Let's hear from him. Omar, welcome. 
Thank you. How are you, Mr. George? By the grace of God, I'm good. Nice to hear from you. It's a pleasure. You know, I just, I just wanted to comment on how you're, you're, you're talking about the... Uh... What a pity. Let's try and get back to him because uh, he wanted to talk about this fake left uh, idea. How's the uh, poll going? 1,771 votes. Uh, and uh, you've still got, what, four minutes to vote at George Galloway. But anyway, do you believe wearing masks help prevent COVID-19? Yes, 54%. No, 37%. See, it's a conspiracy. 9%. Up one. So nearly one in 10 of you uh, that are watching, listening to this show think indeed it is a conspiracy. On YouTube, Mike72 says many nationalities will leave the U.S. countries, sorry, will leave the U.S. Countries will send military ships to get out their people. A mass exodus will come. America will not only fall, America will burn by fire and the earth will be at rest. Sounds almost biblical, Mike. Uh, I hope you're wrong. Carl Frommuth says, regardless of who wins in November, about the only change we will see is accelerated income inequality. And Half Empty says, why 40% of voters love Trump? Because he tells them what they want to hear. Dems used to do this and win. And John Smith says, the left can do no wrong, it seems. What kind of mental stupidity does that take? It is funny, isn't it, that Sir Keir Starmer, who did more than almost anyone else, not quite, to force uh, the Labour Party into uh, betray Brexit posture and force them to enter an election as the betrayers of Brexit, has gone absolutely silent about stopping Brexit. And we're only just a few months away from leaving, perhaps without a deal at all, and the people that destroyed Labour's electoral prospects by forcing this anti-Brexit policy on the party have nothing whatsoever to say about it. Silvio Tavares says no revolution can take place with unarmed people. That's why the elites push such a campaign in order that armed forces are their exclusivity. But... Uh, most of the people with guns in America are right-wing people. Omar's back on the line. Let's hear from him. Omar. Hi there. Hi. Yes. It was a bad line. To... Go ahead. No problem. I just wanted to to get you to speak a little bit more on this on this issue of of the the far left calling themselves the left, even though they seem to have abandoned the sort of enlightenment values that have birthed the left you know this idea that you're a transphobe if you don't think a woman is a woman simply by identifying as one it's kind of like if someone would call you an anti-semite if you don't believe that fronds are sinful to eat kind of thing you know it's it it's it, it, it's very strange and sometimes it makes me think you know, I don't like conspiratorial thinking, but is, is there something going on to sabotage the left? I don't think so. I don't think they need anyone to sabotage them. I think it's in the, in the timber, if you like, uh, maybe in the, in the left's DNA, uh, the narcissism of the small difference, 
which Marx talked about, didn't coin that phrase, but he talked about it, uh, so that uh, if, I, if I want one thing and you want another, and we are both on the left, you have the right to excommunicate me uh, from the left because of that small difference. Uh, the accentuation of identity politics as opposed to class politics began a long time ago. I saw it beginning with my own eyes. Uh, I, saw I think it. that's a, a big problem. I mean, I think the, the core issue is, is class politics and not sure. identity politics. Uh, sure, and, sure. And it, it's but making the, a... It, the left is not there now. Omar, that's not where the left is now. Uh, the left is more infatuated uh, by issues of race and sex and gender and pronouns and all kinds of right-on liberalism. And if, like me, you are economically radical but, but culturally conservative, uh, which actually is the position of the vast majority of working-class people in this country, vast majority, uh, then you are uh, anathematized. You are excommunicated. You're called far right. The things I said at the beginning of the show, and I said them deliberately, because I do not believe that a man can become a woman by self-identifying as one, that alone would get you expelled out of today's Labour Party. Can you imagine that? Of course I can. I'm a Canadian. I'm, I'm from Vancouver. So um, you know so all know. about this. In fact, I, it, came, all it all it. came, Omar, from the west coast of North America. That's where all of this came. Of course. And, you know, I, I very, very, very rarely disagree with you. And, I mean, although I am probably socially more liberal or less than you are on some issues, um, as, a, as a liberal, I, I, you know, tolerance secularism, progress, the ability to agree, to disagree, to have different ideas and voice them without, without demonizing the other. I mean, like, sexism is a real thing and transphobia is a real thing, but I don't think that oppressing transsexual or transgender people is the same thing as, as not having the same definition of, of, of what gender well, is. Well, exactly. I mean, who is advocating uh, repression or oppression? Uh, as I've said here before, I had a friend of mine, well he wasn't really a friend, he was a comrade of mine, who was on our leadership uh, committee uh, when he was a man, uh, and I called him by his male name, and he, he literally overnight uh, began a journey uh, to become a woman, and he called himself uh, with a female name, uh, he wore his hair long and so on. I treated him as a woman. I shook hands with him when he wanted to be a man. I kissed his cheek uh, when he decided he wanted to be a woman. And irony of ironies, uh, I then had to go into reverse because he gave up that journey and went back to identifying as a man again. Uh, so I would never be, because it's in my religion, uh, I can never be cruel or mean to people uh, because of what they are or what they believe themselves to be. I could not. And as a human being, I don't. So I'm not in any way against trans people. And I would treat them if one came in here now 
as they wanted to be treated. But that's a different thing from saying uh, that I must incant that they are a woman, because they are not. That's a matter of simple science and biology. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to get too bogged down on, on, on the, the transgender issue. But, you know, I, I just want to know, how, how do we move forward? I mean, you, take, you see the far left taking on some fascistic qualities, and the far right, they're called fascist, but it, they're worse. I mean, you have these corporations that run the government. I mean, in fascism, That's the, the government runs everything. So that is the question, Omar. That's what we should focus on. Because... The corporations, the system, exploits and oppresses everyone. Black and white, gay and straight, trans and not trans. That's the big question. That's the overarching question. And it's the question that can unite the maximum number of people. Because the owners of everything are very small in number. Those at the mercy of the owners of everything are a very large number of people. They are the majority, overwhelming majority of the, of the people. Last word to you, Omar. Yeah, they're, it's a quickly growing group as well. I mean, the, the, I mean, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. It's never happened so dramatically, you know, sure. especially during the sure. pandemic. But I'm, well, I'm I think the liberals are a busted flush. I think liberalism is a busted flush. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't rewrite nature, you can't rewrite science, you can't go constantly against the grain of what uh, working people believe and expect those working people to feel any affection or loyalty uh, to you. And that's what's happening uh, to so-called uh, socialists, liberals, social democrats, call them what you will. Omar, thanks for persevering uh, with that uh, difficult phone line. Uh, Ricky Spanish on Twitter says, It's a mess, George. Great show as normal. Proud to be Scottish and British. My parents uh, had the pleasure of meeting you once. But sadly, my parents are both in heaven, which now in this sad world, I'm glad they are together. God rest them, Ricky, and thank you. Fernando says, We're going to need... Uh, a, a mother of all talk shows in our homes here in the US. Things don't look that great now. Or maybe he means a moat, an actual moat. Uh, Rene says, quite interesting that he wanted to protect property not belonging to him. Please do proper analysis. Racism is so rife in the USA under Trump, any excuse will be used with strategic shallow analysis of the context. This was even further illuminated by how he was treated by the cops, who would have easily blown a black young man's life to pieces had he walked towards them with that huge gun. I'm sick of the excuses given to instigators of violence. And finally, I think, Tara Brisson Birchall says, BLM and Antifa want to defund the police. Well, don't cry for the police when communities are policing themselves. Uh, well, I don't want to defund the police. I want to refund the police. I want to restore uh, the money that has been cut uh, from police budgets 
here in this country. I want a democratically accountable police force. Uh, I want a police force that lives up to its responsibilities to the people who pay for it. And that can be achieved if you've got the right mayor of London who appoints the right uh, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police and holds that commissioner to account, you wouldn't have the shambles that you've got here in London today with Cressida Dick and Mayor Sadiq Khan. Let's go to the news slightly early. Yes, let's do that. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. India has seen a record 78,761 new coronavirus cases in the last day, the worst 24-hour spike ever recorded across the world in the pandemic. The country's health ministry also reported 948 deaths, taking the total number of fatalities there to 63,498. India is one of the countries that has been worst affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, having seen the fourth highest number of people killed after the US, Brazil and Mexico. The UK has had the fifth highest number of reported deaths in the world, with 12 new fatalities announced on Saturday, taking the total to 41,498. Global case numbers have now reached 25 million, according to Johns Hopkins University, which has been keeping track of the disease. British universities could become the care homes of the second wave of COVID-19, a higher education union has warned. Joe Grady of the University and College Union said that the start of a new university year is the biggest migration of people on an annual basis in the UK and that there is a risk to public health by pushing on with plans to fully reopen campuses in a few weeks' time. Riot police have been deployed in the Belarusian capital ahead of the latest demonstration against the re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko. They have cordoned off Minsk Independence Square as columns of people join a march towards it. Several have already been arrested. Belarus has been gripped by mass protests since the election on the 9th of August, widely believed to have been rigged in favour of the longtime leader who's been in power for 26 years. 
An attempt to storm Germany's parliament during Saturday's big Berlin protest against COVID-19 restrictions has been condemned by politicians across the political spectrum. Demonstrators, many with far-right sympathies, broke through a cordon and ran up the steps of the Reichstag before police dispersed them. The Interior Minister said there should be zero tolerance for such behaviour. Some 38,000 turned out for the wider, largely peaceful Berlin demonstration. The UN Refugee Agency says almost 400 refugees and migrants rescued by three ships in the Mediterranean must be allowed to disembark safely. A joint statement issued with the International Organization for Migration said it was a humanitarian imperative to save lives. Italy's Coast Guard evacuated 49 people from an overloaded rescue vessel funded by British artist Banksy. Another rescue boat, Sea Watch 4, later took the remaining 150 on board. Donald Trump's sister has described him as tight as a duck's ass in a new set of recordings. Former federal judge Marianne Trump Barry can also be heard condemning Ivanka Trump, the president's advisor and second child, and the president's son, who she describes as a public moron. Trump Barry criticizes what she called the damn Ivanka after she posted a photo on Instagram of herself and her young son on the same day the Trump administration was reportedly separating migrant children from their families in 2018. These come from the second set of recordings Trump's niece, Mary Trump, in a conversation between her and Trump Barry made in researching her book about the president called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. In the recording, the pair continued to talk about Ivanka with Trump's sister saying she's a mini Donald, adding the president is besotted with her. He always has been. She's always been his favorite. Moving on to Eric Trump, the president's second son, Trump Barry said, meanwhile, Eric's become the moron publicly. On her brother, she says he only acts when he can be seen in a favorable light and he's as tight as a duck's ass. A tiny painting of a weary, melancholic old man long rejected as a fake and consigned to a museum basement has been revealed as one from Rembrandt's workshops and possibly by the man himself. The Ashmolean Museum in Oxford will this week put on display Head of a Bearded Man, which was bequeathed to them in 1951 as a Rembrandt panel. In 1981, it was rejected by the Rembrandt Research Project, the world's leading authority on the artist that effectively has final say on attributions. The spirited curators moved it into the museum's stores in the basement. However, from Wednesday, it will now be on display again. And finally, the tweet announcing that the actor Chadwick Boseman had died is now the most liked tweet of all time. Twitter confirmed the accolade on its own verified account by simply stating, most liked tweet ever, a tribute fit for a king, hashtag Wakanda forever. Boseman's account shared a black and white image of him with a statement confirming he had lost a four-year battle with colon cancer on Friday. He was 43 years old and had kept his illness a secret. The actor was the star of the movie Black Panther, as well as several other box office hits. The message, which went viral, now stands alone at the top of Twitter's metrics board with more than 6.9 million likes. The next closest tweet was one from Barack Obama in 2017 that included a quote by Nelson Mandela. It said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. Those words and image have been liked more than 4.3 million times. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. listening to Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. 
Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Thank you, Jamie Lowe, for rescuing me there. Uh, I may look like a swan gliding serenely on the surface, but I'm paddling like hell underneath. Or rather, my friends are through the glass. We're having quite a few technical difficulties this evening. I hope they're not showing uh, too much. Poll two is out. If you could vote in the US election, who would you vote for? A, Biden, B, Trump, C, Jesse Ventura. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. This should be a good one. It will be uh, interesting to see what our audience thinks about that poll. So you've got until uh, just before 10 o'clock. Biden, Trump, Jesse Ventura. Now, uh, the coronavirus uh, is still with us, always with us, maybe always, always will be with us. The man who's been with us right from the beginning is, for me, the oracle on this and other medical issues. He's Dr. Ranjit Bra. He's the Moats medic, and I welcome him back to the show. Thank you, doctor. Uh, let me start with yesterday's demonstration. Uh, I don't know how many. They said 35. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but there were certainly tens of thousands uh, of people in Trafalgar Square yesterday. They seemed to have a fairly incohate uh, membership uh, from David Icke uh, to the new British Union of uh, the, the party of, in the memory of uh, Oswald Mosley, the British fascist leader. Uh, but many people in between, many uh, ordinary working people, uh, many, uh, you might call them libertarian people, uh, not at all fascist, indeed probably think they are fighting against fascism. What did you think of the makeup of that demonstration, its demands, and where this story goes? Thanks, George. Pleasure to be back with you. Uh, yeah, so I, read, I watched the coverage of the demonstration and read a few articles about it with interest. Uh, they were certainly an eclectic uh, group politically, as you say, from the far right. Um, to, well, perhaps, the, as you say, the, the libertarian wing. The masks are muzzles, as far as I can see, is a, is a slogan championed by Peter Hitchens in his, his voluminous output on social and mainstream media. Um, and, you know, there is, there is a considerable minority body of opinion, very active on social media, that we've known about and have, and have discussed uh, many times over the last few months, George, who are, well, I you know, skeptical uh, that coronavirus is a genuine entity. And they're, they're for a variety of reasons. Um, the concept of fake news has been with us, particularly um, since Donald Trump, but the awareness that the mainstream media and the political class in our country and, and the US do not have the interests of the vast majority at heart has become an in increasingly widely held opinion. And then when it comes to a public health emergency, such as we are genuinely facing, I think there are large numbers of people who see the agendas which are being pushed, and we've discussed those, whether it's privatization, whether it's uh, 
increasing uh, the uh, number of private contracts that are given out, even over test and trace, uh, very lucrative contracts that were just given over the last couple of weeks to um, um, some of the major marketing uh, uh, firms, the, the, the big four accountancy firms, and so on and so forth. So there's a constantly accelerating agenda uh, and the emergency legislation around COVID pushed a variety of issues, including total deregulation of building and planning, for example, things which clearly, you know, our ruling class, the Tory government, as it stands, have been wanting to push and saw an opportunity to push. So there is a job to do of disentangling all the many streams of quite nefarious sometimes a policy and political activity um, that go behind the scenes. And this is a good time to bury um, well, bad news, a good time to bury policies which could be otherwise very unpopular, just as, for example, Theresa May sought to uh, push forward her reforms to pension as she thought she was going to easily win a massive majority over Corbyn. So in the face of a corona pandemic, which is real and is causing real disruption to the lives of millions, coinciding with a huge economic crisis, which is affecting the lives of really workers throughout the world. And probably we're looking at towards 10% uh, unemployment by official figures and 20% downturn in the UK economy. So massive impact, a huge, you know, people have been talking this week about, for example, uh, the, the massive rise in youth unemployment, which is becoming evident. So there are huge social problems which are being faced. Of course, the daily headlines are about coronavirus and the two issues uh, of people's lives, deteriorating living standards, economic problems, are conflated with the health problems. And there's a wide you know, spread degree of frustration with the problems uh, that workers in our country are facing. And very often that points in the direction of people's you know, mis mistrust of the official narrative, of course, confusion in that narrative doesn't help. Um, and then the alternative agenda, which seems to lie behind it. But, it, you know, in terms of the demands, you know, which essentially are to get rid of masks, to get rid of social distancing, to ignore the coronavirus as if it's something that isn't real, um, it shows fundamentally a kind of disconnect from reality. It's, you know, people across the political spectrum, across the world who are facing this problem, their responses have been very different. And there's no question that right now the, the reaction of different governments are holding up a mirror um, to the makeup of our society and to the makeup of the economic order of our world and to the fact that this economic crisis is worsening the conditions of you know, hundreds of millions and, and billions of people across the world. But the answer to all those problems is not to deny the existence of coronavirus, which is quite clearly a genuine phenom phenomenon, George. We still get people insisting uh, that it is no worse than the flu. I read out from someone uh, earlier uh, a missive uh, which uh, challenged uh, both you and I uh, on, and indeed uh, what she described as the left uh, on this uh, coronavirus uh, issue, who continue to insist that deaths from the coronavirus, deaths in general this year, are no more than they would be uh, in a normal year. This is manifestly, statistically nonsense. Yet a huge number of people continue to say it. What is the truth about the death rate in Britain from coronavirus? Um, 
you know, this is a phenomenon that I've seen since the very inception of the pandemic. My, my initial uh, response was looking at the raw numbers, the numbers of people when, when it was a major news item, when the outbreak was happening seemingly only in China, though we've subsequently realised it wasn't just happening in China, but it was recognised, diagnosed, characterised first in China. That information was very rapidly shared with the world. But there were, you know, my initial reaction was to say these are relatively small numbers compared to other phenomena we're seeing. But we have seen how desperately infectious coronavirus is many more times than um, normal bacterial infections, many more times than other viral infections. Um, so that left to itself without a change in our behavior, um, we saw that the average uh, R rate was between three and four, and some countries reaching six or seven, others slightly lesser, depending on the social characteristics, how closely people were um, uh, you know, uh, living, cohabiting, how closely people were in terms of city or countryside, and the characteristics of you know, different nations and, and, and economies. But the basic fact of the matter was the virus was incredibly infectious. Now, that's fine if it's just the common cold. It doesn't matter that it's infectious. And generally, the world is not set up to stop the spread of viruses precisely because the general rule is um, uh, the airborne respiratory type viruses have not been desperately in, uh, um, um, high in mortality. The flu is probably the highest and it's generally considered the best policy to allow it to spread to protect those who are most vulnerable with a vaccine, which we do have. Uh, and uh, mitigate its effects in that way. This is this is fundamentally different. Whilst the flu, you know, yes, it affects people who are elderly and have comorbidities, and probably talking about 0.1% mortality or less globally, uh, though a very large number of people get it, and particularly the elderly. Coronavirus we saw was fundamentally different. People have been worried about pandemics for many years. Some people look back and say that anyone involved with planning for planning for epidemic scenarios are involved in some kind of um, a conspiracy to cause harm or to spread social change by panic mongering. And now this is them rolling out their plan. But the reality is we've seen several coronaviridae, several coronaviruses, SARS, MERS in particular, um, that have had this desperately high mortality precisely because they cause a, a viral pneumonia, which is not characteristic of the common cold and is not characteristic of flu. And it's that viral pneumonia um, as well as a kind of vasculitis uh, type um, problem, which we saw with coronavirus, which led us to believe that its true mortality is between one and two percent. Well, now that's significantly higher. And if it's so infectious, and although one and two percent seems low, if you're talking about an everyday problem and someone says it's one percent risk, I frequently perform operations for patients. And I say, look, the risk of mortality of not making it through this operation within 30 days is one percent. And this seems a low level of risk that we can live with. But that's, of course, one individual. If you're exposing an entire population, a worldwide population, potentially to one to two percent mortality, you're talking about, you know, 100, 150 million potential deaths. And this is not to panic monger, but these are the very real problems that the world is facing. Now, the Chinese who dealt with this problem very effectively and very efficiently, as did others, including in New Zealand, including in Korea, including in Vietnam, including in even in sections of India, whilst other sections are running rampant, they adopted widespread public health measures to prevent the spread. And having done so, have been able to return to a relatively normal life. And it seems self evident that to mobilize the nation's resources, health resources, economic resources, to allow the threat to be of, of this infectious 
pandemic to be curtailed in an organized and efficient manner is the quickest way of getting over it and getting back to life. And, and, and really the consistent criticism, in particular the United States and the United Kingdom, actually precisely because of our economic model, though economically powerful countries, though wealthy countries with a huge economic disparity between rich and poor and a lack of access to the poor in the United States to healthcare measures, to testing in the first instance, we were seeing you know, uh, patients unable to pay for uh, testing when they wanted it and, and the resultant spread that we've seen in the United States. And in the United Kingdom, it was a deliberate policy choice that we were going to adopt this uh, uh, herd strategy of herd immunity, which, in a, as we've seen, in an immunologically naive population who didn't have previous exposure to a virus which was far more deadly than the flu and has been very consistently uh, shown to be so. I know that's still disputed by the people who doubt the existence of coronavirus, but it has been. Um, and on a world scale, if you look at the tested cases, and again, we've had another 2 million cases uh, uh, this week. So that means you know, more than a quarter of a million people worldwide we know by testing are contracting it each week. Uh, every day on a world scale, at least 6,000 people are currently dying of coronavirus. So while the deaths seem to have gone down in the UK, and there's a lot of arguing as to, as to why that is, whether it truly is a less angry virus, whether it's mutated to be less angry, or in fact, whether despite the fact um, that cases have gone up, it's probably at the moment the relatively younger parts of the population who we know suffer fewer ill effects due to the virus. That means there are fewer deaths. But of course, if the virus becomes more prevalent in the population, it becomes increasingly hard for the elderly and vulnerable and sick to isolate themselves. And in which case, yes, the death rate can go up. But there's an unquestionably the case, George, I'm sorry to go on, but it's unquestionably the case that, you know, if you look at excess mortality uh, in that early part of the year, two to three months, we saw in the region of 70 to 80,000 um, deaths. Extra deaths extra deaths. And that's very hard data, which can't be argued away. And, you know, the only real factor in a year which was otherwise looking like initially that we had fewer than expected deaths on a downward trend of mortality. You know, the new factor is the coronavirus. And those two phenomena so clearly coincide. It's very hard to simply dismiss it out of hand as if it Quite, was not a real phenomenon. Uh, 70,000 people with families. So that's uh, hundreds of thousands of people have had their lives uh, badly uh, affected or lost uh, in just a few months in a developed, wealthy country like Britain. If you read the Telegraph today, uh, I don't know if you yet have, it is a devastating indictment uh, on the uh, Boris Johnson government and its handling uh, of this crisis. There is no doubt that the United States and Britain have fared worst in the whole world because of policy and administrative failures in our uh, two countries, don't you think? I think that's undoubtedly true. And I think it's an indictment of the essentially laissez-faire economic approach um, and the laissez which was applied in the field of health, because this was the manner in which, you know, the the big wigs, the, the leading um, uh, uh, figures of both governments think and, you know, quite deliberately promote. Uh, and that has, you know, similarly devastating economic yeah. effects. Uh, well, talk, I wanted to ask you bit. about that, Doctor. Uh, of course, it could be uh, just a coincidence that uh, two blonde-haired uh, uh, um, free market champions are presiding over the two countries uh, that have fared worst 
according to the Daily Telegraph, not according to me. But the truth is, isn't it, that though the proximate cause of this economic collapse is the coronavirus, it was a collapse that was waiting to happen. This crash was already in the pipeline before we ever heard the word coronavirus. I mean, that's absolutely uh, the case, George. So, you know, th there's much talk about the free market. I think in reality that the, the market has not been free in the sense of small producers freely exchanging with each other the goods that they produce on a small scale. That has not been a characteristic feature of the world market uh, for well over 100 years for the First World War. And what we see overwhelmingly uh, in our market today is in fact the domination of monopoly, the domination of a very few players who control the overwhelming majority of production. Uh, and the problem with that is they've impoverished such a vast mass of humanity to such a degree that they in fact cannot buy the, the very goods which can be produced in ever greater abundance, uh, ever, ever cheaper unit price. Um, but despite the, the relative cheapening of the unit price, the decrease in human labor power necessary to produce all these goods, the impoverishment uh, of, the, of the working people who are bound to be the ultimate market, the recipients for the goods of industry, um, are so impoverished they can't buy them. And so goods are stacked up as they were in the 2008 crisis when it was blamed on a housing collapse. But what did that housing collapse mean? It meant really, as Professor Wolf has so eloquently said in your, uh, your show in the past, and I've seen it, you know, it was an expansion of credit. So when the, when the people are impoverished, banks found a way they could loan their capital, loan money to people who could never afford to repay the loans, which was artificially seeming to cause a boom until it became apparently you know, clear to everyone uh, that those loans would never be repaid. Credit collapsed, uh, led to the credit crunch and the collapse in 2008. And they get loads of goods, loads of uh, very, very many manufacturing uh, enterprises were mothballed never to return. And there was an increase in monopolization as the very biggest players brought out the relatively big, uh, no small players left in the market and a further centralization. So again, we've, we've got this absurd situation where half of the uh, well, the, the, the poorest half of the planet's population, so three and a half billion to four billion people have less wealth than the richest six billionaires on the planet. And no matter how cheaply those six billionaires produce, as long as their sole motivation for production is profit, they can't sell to that poorest half of the population. So it totally distorts the running uh, of the economy. And of course, with the prospect of so many of these um, supply chains, short-term supply chains, um, having to go on hold in the coronavirus pandemic, it precipitated. It precipitated, and, and the decrease in demand associated with uh, lockdown, which was having to be implemented in countries who hadn't put in place timely public health measures, precisely because they had so many impoverished population. And I'm afraid to say that the, you know, the so-called third world, the people in Africa, Asia, Latin America, will be particularly hard hit. And the numbers, I'm afraid, will show that uh, over time, despite the fact they have warmer climates, their relative poverty, their inaccess to healthcare facilities, on top of the, you know, already desperately um, poor health statistics that they are having to struggle with due to their impoverishment in this world economic system, I mean, they will suffer particularly badly. And that those figures will come out in time, George. But, the, you know, it's unquestionably the case that the massive economic downturn is precipitated by a laissez-faire system which encourages, um, aids and abets this kind of robbery of the world. And, and, and I'm afraid to say that that system is buttressed by um, neo-colonial wars, 
any time a country tries to buck that trend. And indeed, this kind of Cold War that we're seeing ramping up with China is very much a product of that. The American century, the Monroe Doctrine, you know, there's been well over 100 years of policy of the United States to ensure that they're essentially the, the only global player able to dominate the world's markets and the military as well as industry work hand in glove to ensure that's the case. And I'm afraid that is the ultimate cause of so much um, discontent and not a, a virus which, you know, human means, the current technology we have, even without waiting for any vaccination, which will help us in the current situation, we have the means to deal with the coronavirus. And I think uh, the independent SAGE group have been very reasonable uh, in putting forward, uh, you know, the demand that our government pursue measures which would essentially, through public health measures, eradicate coronavirus as a source of disease yeah. country. They, actually, this, the independent SAGE group have done very well. I've been uh, following their stuff recently. Dr. Ranjit Brar, Motes Medic, thanks very much indeed for joining us once more on the mother of all talk shows. Much appreciated. Now, poll two is also uh, going very well. 1,147 votes so far. Biden, 48%. Wow. Trump, 19%. Jesse Ventura, 33%. So Trump's going to uh, split the vote and let Biden in. You can still vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. I hope Jesse sees this poll. A third of respondents would be backing Governor Jesse Ventura. Let's take a 60-second break. Call me. Come and have a go. If you think you're hard enough, don't bring up a false name. Come on air. Call me. And let's have this matter out. Mm, let's get ready to I'd like you know, the nerve to tell people the Brexit if you have not, if you're not that, telling them that's the repercussions. That's 2016's argument, Michael. I'm no longer arguing with you about the merits of Brexit. I'm arguing with you about democracy, about the right of the majority to have their decision, their vote implemented. This match will get red hot. Not have a referendum. No, Let them have I, a referendum. Let them sort it out amongst themselves. I want a referendum. Robert, I want <laughs> a referendum. Let me put that in capital letters. If you think this year of 2020, which is shaping up already to be an honest miserableness for the SNP, if you think this is your year, go ahead. Come on. Let's have it out. It's on. But no, no, George, it's not as simple as that, right? Have you seen the documentary about Cambridge Analytica and the people oh. who work there? Have you looked at the I global... I know nothing about that. I'm, I'm not interested but, but in precisely, them. precisely, but I'm not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in them, Bruce, because it's all a red herring, just like Russiagate was a but, red but, herring. But you're up. Do you only want to hear voices that agree with you? Because if you do, you're not clever enough to be at this open university of the airwaves. In fact, you need to go back to remedial and learn something about what democracy and freedom of speech actually mean. George Galloway. 
and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Because there are fewer calls, uh, though we will have some more, uh, I've got a tremendous amount of written uh, commentary. Jerry says, where do you stand on the left side of politics in the UK? Will they ever get into government now? Well, I'm the leader of the Workers' Party of Britain. You can check it out. Richard Tyler says, it's truly mind-boggling the amount of people who don't realise Nye Bevan, Harold Wilson, John Smith, etc., would never have allowed Clause 4 to be dropped because they ceased to be socialist from that moment. And Marion Mortada says, are people dying from anything else these days? I sure hope they aren't labelling deaths as COVID that were from other ailments. Well, if you think our doctors are uh, scheming, conspiring liars, uh, maybe they are. I've just got a better opinion of our doctors than that. Lieutenant Gonville Bromhead of the 24th of Foot says, I do not understand the hatred for Trump. He has transformed the states for the better. Oh, dear. Jones Kitchen says, people in the states are losing it at the thought of extending this madness for another four years. My sense is that Trump will not be re-elected. And on YouTube, Rachel Thompson says, the police are necessary, but they are always corrupted and act above the law. Well, not if I was in charge, Rachel. Michael Yavorsky says, America doesn't have a racism problem. It has a problem with special interests using racism as a dog whistle. Jesus, Michael, you need to get out more. Hadidi89 says, mainstream media is all fake nowadays. That's why I come to watch your show every Sunday, so I can follow real news and understand what's really happening in this world. Thank you for that. And I hope you'll come on Wednesday evenings too from October. It'll only cost you a dollar. And if it works, uh, then we could even extend uh, beyond just uh, one midweek show. That's certainly my... Uh, I'd, to be honest, I'd love to do a daily show and be, put my cards on the table. I'd love a Moats daily show. I know that not everyone could watch it every night, but you'd know that it was always there and to be caught up with also. And Jez says, why include Ventura? He's not up for election. He is. Why not throw in Schwarzenegger in the mix or any other half-sensible person with a political record? The only sensible answer today is to vote for whoever can defeat Trump. Regrettably, the only option now available is Biden. But Jesse is standing. That's the problem with your thesis, Jez. Uh, and uh, by the way, he's going up in this poll. Fantastic. Now, my old friend Patrick Christie's uh, is a political commentator, but a man with a wide uh, a purview, uh, and he and I are Manchester United fans, so we never have nothing to talk about. Uh, Patrick joins me on the line now. Patrick, first of all, are we going to get Jaden Sancho, or is that all off? Oh, unfortunately, it looks like it's off unless we're willing to pay through our, our hind teeth for him. But I, I hope that if Manchester City get messy, it will finally make the Glazers put their hands in their deep pockets and get us a couple of marquee signings, because goodness knows we need them. You couldn't get more marquee than, uh, than uh, Messi signing for Manchester City. Are you hoping he's past his best? 
Well, it's interesting, actually, because I've got a lot of friends who are, who are City fans. And, and actually, not a lot of them want him because they're saying that, well, they've got Kevin De Bruyne and they've got Phil Foden. They don't want him to to, to, to block that. But um, I, I think, look, realistically, as soon as he puts the City shirt on, they'll all be jumping for joy, won't they? But um, yeah, I think it looks as though Lionel Messi might be uh, swapping Barcelona for Manchester, which is the opposite move to uh, most Mancunians. No, <laughs> no, uh, I can't let you away without mentioning Boris Johnson. He yes. uh, has an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. He has presided over huge conservative leads in the opinion polls. And he's now neck and neck with a block of wood called Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, where did it all go wrong for Boris? I, I think, look, first and foremost, any leader, any you know, incumbent would struggle given the, the current climate um, just because it's all negative and therefore he's the one delivering all, all the negativity. At least that's what's seen by the public. That said, he's not helped himself with a lack of clarity on certain things. I mean, the education fiasco was, was, was the case in point there. But I think he's being held back by actually the same thing Sir Keir Starmer will be held back with uh, were he in power, which is a lack of quality in cabinet and a lack of quality in the political squad, as it were. I think that's an issue. He's also been, I say forced into, he's decided to anyway, do a few quite un-Tory policies. You know, the nanny statism that's going around at the minute with regards to losing weight and, and this, that and the other. Um, and of course, as well, what this knock-on effect, the big knock-on effect of the coronavirus pandemic has been, is, has been unemployment. And when, when you get large... Uh, swathes of unemployment uh, and people's finances start to take a hit, then that becomes fertile ground for socialism, right? And so, or nationalism, I suppose, one way or the other, but but in this case, socialism. And, and so I, I think that's what he's up against at the moment. And of course, he rode in on a wave of kind of get Brexit done and this, that and the other. And that is still uh, happening, I suppose, behind the scenes, but it's not the main focus and it's taken the wind out of his sails somewhat. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, one damn thing, it's one damn thing after another. Uh, don't you think uh, the, the, the perception is that Boris Johnson has zigged and zagged uh, on the response to the coronavirus? In the Telegraph this morning, there is a totally, which he used to work for, mm. there is a totally devastating uh, uh, attack on the Conservative government's handling of the virus. Uh, it's, uh, it's the sense that he's tossing like a cork on the ocean, neither one thing nor the other. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things with Boris, which is that, that he's the type of person, and look, this is a tried and tested political technique, don't get me wrong, where you have one or two absolute core fundamental issues and you decide to do them very well, uh, and that's what you hang your hat on. Uh, and at the moment, the, just the, the overwhelming core issue is, of course, the coronavirus pandemic, which is not something that I think Boris Johnson ever thought he would have to deal with, and, uh, uh, and that's, been, that's been a major issue for, for him, uh, undoubtedly. I think it comes back to this... This, this debatable lack of competence behind the scenes. You know, if he's a man who relies heavily on the advice that he's getting, you have to question what advice he has been getting, really, because we arguably went into lockdown too late and then it came out of lockdown too late as well. And there's been a lot of things in between, of course, as, as, as you well know. And I, I do just wonder whether or not his heart's still in it, actually, George, to be perfectly honest well, with you. Well, that was what I was going to ask you next, uh, because uh, Dominic Cummings' father... Mm. told someone, which uh, rather unfairly for the old boy, ended up on the front pages, uh, that Boris's heart isn't now in it mm. and that he might, uh, he might chuck it once he's got the Brexit 
uh, in the bag. What do you think of that? Yeah, look, I think that's quite likely, actually. I, th I think Boris Johnson has, look, I mean, we, we, there are some facts to do with this, which is that for a while, I think undoubtedly he was gravely ill, right? And, and that, that won't have helped. And I think it's plain to see that he's not, he's still not, in my opinion, the same bloke that he was when he first walked into to Downing Street. I, I, I do just wonder whether or not he actually wants to stand again. I think there is a sense for, you know, the Conservatives, just by way of, of, the, of the way that politics works, should not have been in power for this length of time. There has to be a, a changeover. That's almost a natural cycle of things. And so that's coming to an end anyway, right? And I don't think he wants to be a losing Prime Minister. I think his main priority was just to get into Downing Street. I don't think he's cut out for this particular task. That said, I'm not sure anyone really is. I mean, it is a bit nuts, isn't it? Uh, I, I suspect that he's going to try and hang his hat on Brexit, get that done. I mean, it looks to me like we are going to get no deal, really. Uh, I think he's going to try and get that through. And then I'll, I'd be surprised if he was still in post, really, with maybe a year or, or 18 months to go before the next general election. Very interesting. And uh, who would be the Lionel Messi uh, that, <laughs> would be, uh, that would succeed him? Gosh, I, I think the Conservative Party, uh, and I do think, by the way, I, I do think the Labour Party will get found out on this when I imagine that they may well win the next general election, although it would pay me to say that somewhat, uh, which is the lack of the lack of squad depth, as you use that football term. And I'm looking around, I think Rishi Sunak has undoubtedly positioned himself relatively well. I, I don't really believe necessarily that, that Priti Patel is up for it. I, I, I suspect that maybe the Conservative Party will be better going for somebody uh, a little bit left field, maybe a, a bit of a new I think they need a new uh, rebranding and those people have yet to emerge because since we've had the last election, of course, uh, no one's really been able to come to the fore given they've been overtaken by events somewhat. So if it's not Rishi Sunak, I, I would expect it to maybe be someone who's, who's lesser known at the moment. Now, uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Patrick, uh, is the football, when it comes back, uh, going to be in front of empty stadia? Is there any sign of fans uh, being allowed into the grounds? Well, there was a match that took place uh, between Chelsea and Brighton, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, and that had 2,500 fans in, of course, there's nowhere near capacity, but they were all socially distanced. Rugby matches are going to trial that, and hopefully from October they can. There's talk of women's football as well being almost the, the, the kind of forebearer for what's to come. They're going to trial things there. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that we do get fans back in stadiums. In some of the Southeast Asian countries, what they do regularly at, at train terminals and things like that is they have this kind of antibacterial spray that everyone walks through, and that's supposed to essentially, uh, as far as we know anyway, kind of render you immune for a period of time. So I hope I see no reason why we can't do something like that at football stadiums. I, I do also think as well that it's, that it's absolutely necessary because football, especially in this country, the Premier League, is, is a very visual symbol, right, of how we're doing as a society. When the Premier League is going well, it seems like society is going well. And the longer that we have empty stadia and we have fake crowd noise and things, it's a very visual reminder, actually, that we're all in a bit of a mess and that things aren't normal. Uh, there is also, of course, the, the big knock-on effect as well of, uh, you know, all the, the pubs, cafes, bars, etc., 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 that thrive off of, of having loads of fans pouring in and out of them every single Saturday. And that needs to get back to normal as well. And one thing I will just say on it in terms of people saying, well, is it safe? Well, look, this is not a comment, by the way, on, on the Black Lives Matter protests. I'm just saying that they happened and that saw a lot of people congregated in, in quite close proximity in, in areas. There weren't massive spikes off the back of that. We're having about a thousand new cases a day and around 10 to 12 deaths a day in the UK. That's on average now. And so when you bear in mind that 500 people a day die of heart attacks and 
We have about 10 to 12 deaths actually from road traffic collisions every single day. I do wonder whether or not it's still worth completely shutting down football stadia as a result of this virus. But of course, I'm not the one making the decisions. Patrick Christie, as always, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. So Biden's on 48. Trump is on 19 now, down one. Jesse Ventura up one on 33. 1,360 of you have voted. Now, let me get back to the paperwork. Uh, Terence Green says, I don't like Biden, but I think the Democrats will introduce a universal basic income. I just saw a pig flying. Uh, Invisible Me says, 48% uh, for Trump just goes to show people are still not listening. No, it's 48% for Biden. Uh, they would rather drop down and die than support anyone else. Michael Wilson says, maybe we have polite fascism from a right-wing government, but it's not real fascism. It's all paper talk, really. It's possible it could rise. I'm not saying you are wrong. Stay safe. Patrick is in Dublin on masks. Go ahead, Patrick. That's not Patrick, it's actually Peter. Peter, I'm very, very yes. sorry. It's one state for another. Go ahead. Church, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you to your newborn, okay? Thank you. And I wish you all the best for everything. Thank you. Um, listen, I'm a great listener, okay? I agree with everything you say. Okay, my vote on masks. Of course, you have to wear masks if you spit when you talk, okay? That's because right. there's, an awful lot of people, there's an awful lot of people out there that spit when they talk. And it helps if they actually just can contain themselves, all right? Um, That's how I see it. That's how I see it, Peter. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm self-employed, and I'm working with an awful lot of people all around the country, from in Dublin, everywhere around. I haven't worn a mask, okay? Um, I've never been vaccinated. My parents are totally against it, all right? And the only thing I... Always, um, what I ever got was a tetanus shot in the army, all right? Okay. Like, what's the, what's the hype about it? Actually, the last two days, twice I got approached to wear a mask. But then I told them I had no mask because I'm just from work. And they just told me to go ahead. What's the rules right? in Ireland? Well, the rules are you're supposed to wear masks, okay? In I'm going to be in Ireland uh, this coming week, uh, and uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd probably better bring a mask with me. But, see, I wouldn't oh, sit on the plane without a mask. Why would you? I mean, I sometimes would like to wear a mask on a plane in normal times without coronavirus because there's a lot going around, Peter. Uh, without a doubt, I have been sick for many, many times, sitting in public transport, and I probably caught something. And but I'm, look, I'm 48 years old, never been vaccinated. Okay, I'm still alive, kicking, but I'm a healthy man. Good. I'm very glad to hear it, Peter. Thanks yeah. for your call. Yeah. Sorry for mixing you up with another saint. Uh, let's see how the uh, numbers are going. They're still the same. Uh, no, B Biden's down one. Trump is up one, back up to 20, but Jesse is still on 33. Kevin Broom says, I might be stating the obvious, but here goes. If the police in the US want to arrest you, black or white, don't resist and they won't kill you. Happy days. Not so sure, Kevin. Jim McDonald says, as an admirer of you since the 80s, I'm so disappointed with your current lack of research into current affairs. 
Oh dear. Instead of adding a new weekly show, maybe you should spend some more time finding out what is really going on and refrain from subscribing to the mass media and its corrupt so-called journalists. Well, as an admirer of yours, Jim, for the last few minutes, I'm really disappointed in you because actually I have no researchers. I do everything myself and I'm pretty clued up on what's going on. And what you fail to do in that missive is tell me what it is exactly you disagree with me on. Because if you had told me, I'd be able to answer you. But as you haven't, it's just a general smear. James is in Dunfermline. James, go ahead, sir. So, Sonia Poulton on your show tonight, and I was very disappointed to see that because um, she goes about trying to say that it was the McCanns who murdered little Madeline, and she goes about spouting this off to well, everybody. She didn't say anything, listen, uh, making she, their lives a nightmare. James, she went to the front James, door, James, banging on their door. She went James, on James, she didn't say anything like that this evening, and I would not have allowed her uh, to say anything like that this evening. Uh, and I'm not going to uh, pre-censor guests. I'm not going to say someone can't come on because one time they wrote or said something uh, that I strongly uh, disagree with. So I'm afraid uh, I can't run the risk uh, of, uh, of defamation uh, or, for that matter, uh, any kind of problem with legal proceedings that may or may not be live to continue this conversation uh, with you. Uh, 1,526 of you have now voted. Uh, Trump's up one, Biden down one, Jesse rock solid, as constant as the Northern Star on 33%. 60 second break. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Hello, America. It is me, Joe Biden. I think I'm not reading a teleprompter. I'm perfectly capable of speaking for myself. Myself. Radio Sputnik. George Galloway. 
and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Let's take another call while we can. Richard is in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Hello, George. Congratulations on your new child. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to say, please, I had a smashing bet and won quite a few, Bob, on uh, Tyson Fury. Well done, Tyson. Well, well done, you. I'm on a winner. Now, my <laughs> next quest is to win a few quid, and I mean a few quid, because Trump will win the next election. He might, yeah, he might. I, I, I personally feel he will, but uh, that's only a feeling. You know I predicted it correctly last time, and uh, it's my feeling right at this moment uh, that Trump will win again. I'm saving up a bit of money to go to the bookies. Well, uh, I won a lot of money uh, uh, in that uh, in that election, and, uh, and, and I also uh, I won it on Brexit. I won it on the Scottish uh, referendum. I'm, I'm on the big decisions. I've been right, uh, and um, I'm not yet saying I'm not calling it for Trump in any way. But at this moment, I would say it's curving in his direction for. I'm with you on that, George. Can I just say that I think that this lot that's going on is a, is a redressing of, of, of too many years of Clinton triangular politics. Blair copied him. And that, that crooked family, uh, along with uh, Obamaism, it's brought American politics to its knees, George. Well, uh, you'll remember my phrase, Richard, as a regular listener. I'm not happy that Trump is the president. No. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy that Trump is the president, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton isn't. I'm sure. And I saw you, I saw you when you were in the Senate, and uh, I congratulated you on the way that you ripped Thank them you. apart. Thank because you. I'm sure at the end of the day, there were some bad, bad politicians involved in that. Lot. There was, there was. But, you know, I think the Democrats have thrown it away again, Richard. Uh, if they put up a, a, a better candidate than Clinton, and if they put up a better candidate than Biden, they would have won. I'm sure. But Pelosi and Schumer, they've got to clear the swamp. It's like our prime minister here. He's had to clear the swamp. And along with, I'm a socialist like you, but I voted this time to get us away from Mrs. May and that cabal that she got that kept us for three and a half years waiting to get through to tr to, to, through the Brexit. The Brexit and yeah. it was an absolute disgrace. And what I've learned since then, George, is probably not for me to tell you now, but it was a disgrace what happened to this country. And uh, you were in the midst of it, as were people like Mike Graham and Talk Radio and a few other people. And they kept her feet to the fire, and we won. But they're still fighting, George. Oh, sure. Uh, there's a rear guard action uh, going on uh, all the time. Even when we're out, uh, we'll, uh, we'll still have uh, a fifth column trying to get us back in. Richard, oh, yes, enjoy, enjoy your winnings, my friend. I appreciate your kind words very much. Uh, Biden's down now on 47. Trump still on 20. Jesse still on 33. 1,526 uh, votes. Now, this is a really distressing uh, message from Norma Cleves. A bit upset tonight, George. You said you do not want your children being taught about anal sex. Boys need to have the freedom to choose a partner of the same sex.
to be accepted and understood, and school children need to be educated about this. I have a great nephew who was bullied at school, a rather innocent boy, and is now happy that he has a loving partner of the same sex, but he suffered. His mother and father are proud of him, but sadly others are ashamed to mention his situation. Norma, I'm talking about 12-year-old children being taught about anal sex. I won't have it. I will not allow it. I will not allow my children to be prematurely exposed uh, to deviant sexual practices. And anal sex is a deviant sexual practice with many dangers attached to it. That's nothing to do with gayness. That's nothing to do with being uh, uh, accepting and embracing of people who are homosexuals, which I have done all of my life. I even got an award from Stonewall for standing up for the rights of gay people uh, to equal treatment uh, under the law long before it became fashionable. Don't try and paint me as a homophobe because I don't want my 12-year-old children to be taught the graphic details of anal sex or other. I don't want to go into some of the other things that they are teaching our children in Scotland. I'm opposed to it, and if I'm elected to the Scottish Parliament, I will seek to scrap it, not because I don't like gay people. There's gay people within touching distance of me now on whom I depend and whom I love. It's nothing to do with homosexuality. It's to do with children. Children need to be protected from premature sexualization. That's my problem with it. Norma says, Martin, sorry, Martin Howie says, as I posted on the chat, did anyone ever get to the bottom of what happened to Jeffrey Dickens' dossier on paedophiles operating in and around Westminster? Certainly Lord Steele's admission to the independent inquiry into child sex abuse that he failed to pass on allegations against Cyril Smith, the then MP for Rochdale, even though he believed them to be true on the grounds that he believed it to be past history and nothing to do with him was disturbing. I knew Jeffrey Dickens very well and I was in Parliament with him uh, when he was campaigning around these issues and he was ahead of his time. He was saying things that many people thought were um, conspiracy theories uh, but now realize that were merely the tip of the iceberg. And to lose his dossier seems a little bit careless, doesn't it? Chris in Colchester will be the last call of the evening. I'm sure it'll be a good one. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, George. Yeah, um, I, I do agree with you. You know, it's um, the, with these liberals, I don't, I don't like to call them liberals because the dictionary version of liberal is, is open to other ideas, but they, they're not open to anything. And um, No, they're zealots. Uh, they're zealots. They are zealots. And, 
you know, I can listen, even though I disagree with you about a lot, uh, with you about a lot of stuff and, and other people on the left, I can listen to you. But if I turn on BBC News or listen to CNN or someone like James O'Brien, uh, within five minutes, I'm, I want to, I'm swearing at the radio or the TV. I, I just can't listen to these people. They're, they're maniacs. And um, it, it's dangerous. And I, what and the, I, the BBC, I'm, of course, we, we're forced to pay for it on pain of imprisonment. And yet it doesn't actually reflect popular culture, political opinion, or the national psyche at all. It's like a foreign occupation in the country. Disgusting. Um, and but, but with regards to America as well, the liberals in the US, um, the, the, the CNNs of the world and the MSNBCs, they're, they're literally stirring up hatred and violence all the time. And... No, where are the fact checkers that when when it comes to people like these, they're, you know, and and when they're cheering on wars, um, they're they're nowhere to be seen. And I, what I do worry about is when Trump wins again, which I suspect he does, if there's a fair election, they're going to lose their minds. And I really do, I, I'm concerned about what the well. They either lost way, their minds in uh, Chris, either way, whatever happens, if Trump wins, if Biden wins, there's going to be trouble. Uh, coming down the pipe. Well, look, I've r literally run out of time. I'm deeply grateful to my friends through the glass who kept a very difficult show on the road, and I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, come back next week at the same time, the same place. It's been marvellous. <laughs>